This episode of the Screenwriter's Rant Room is also brought to you by the Tyrota Finish Line Social Impact Script Competition. It's back for a second year in a row. The competition will again celebrate film and television scripts that seek to raise awareness and inspire change regarding urgent issues with critical relevance across our society now, such as racial, gender, or economic inequality, climate change, drug addiction, the broken foster care system, gun violence, and much more. The competition especially encourages submissions from historically underrepresented writers. The Tyrota Finish Line Script Competition runs from January 18th through June 10th. Please go to Film Freeway and learn how to submit your script. This episode of the Screenwriter's Rant Room is brought to you by the Finish Line Script Competition. In its sixth year, the Finish Line Script Competition is the only script competition run by ex-literary managers. Six-plus pages of actionable development notes are available to you, or you can submit your script as is. Scripts can be rewritten and resubmitted for free anytime throughout the competition. Over 40 mentors read and meet with the winners, and the competition staff itself works with many semifinalists on getting their material read throughout the industry. They are here to help writers succeed by improving your script along the way and making sure you get opportunities when your material is ready. So check out what's happening at finishlinescriptcomp.com, now open for submissions. I'ma say what I feel and I promise to keep it real. Welcome to the Red Room. Well, you gotta be a rider till your fears are diminishing the doubts are behind ya. It's hard to grind in the business, got me stressed in the rent room. We let that shit up off our chest. You know the street nerds got no time for no caca. Sass in class, yes, that's Mr. Bolakaja. Never have to guess when you're listening to Hilliard. He gon' bring more game than a shark playing billiards. It's all about the crap of screenwriting. It's exciting when you turn an outline into something enlightening. Your pen and words are like bullets in a gun. Write what you feel, say what you want. Welcome to the Rant Room. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Hilliard Guest. You guys are listening to the Screenwriters Rant Room. Where we keep it real. We keep it opinionated. We keep it what, y'all? Y'all can join me. You can jump on right quick. We keep it Wakanda forever. Ever. Wakanda yeah. forever. <laughs> you know how we do it on the show. I, I, I messed it up. I was on mute. Wakanda forever. Okay, okay go ahead. <laughs> you know how we do it on the Rant Room. On this show, we discuss entertainment, TV, film, music, culture, but our focus is always screenwriting, stories, crafts, and shit like that. You hear her voice, the original L Boogie in the building. I like that little thing you got wrapped around your hair. Too bad people can't uh, see what you look like. Oh, no, no. It's because it's the top of my hair was wet. That's all. I came out the shower and my, <laughs> lo- and my hair, because you know I got locks, but the top of my hair, I have that, that real curly hair, so it's like, it's like a big curly poof. And yeah. I didn't have time to put any like oil, sesame oil to make to slick down them baby hair and them edges, y'all. <laughs> I still got them edges, them pretty baby hairs. But uh, yeah, I just tied a, I just tied a head rag on top of there because like, all right, it's getting poofy. Let me just, we got, we got company coming over, as we used to say back in the day. We got company coming over. <laughs> got to tie up that hair a little bit. So I'm not trying to look cute. I'm just trying to like keep that hair from. I like it. You give me everywhere. a little bit of that, you know, 
that Pirates of the Caribbean look. So well, I used to I used to wear it like this all the time. Like when I used to work in the mountains, like I used to have this head tied up, like the African, like just really the whole all of it tied and just you know keeping it from the the elements. Because people don't know this, locks are very fragile. They may look strong and like they're beautiful, but they're very delicate. Just like black people, we're strong, but very delicate and beautiful <laughs> and wonderful. And you know, sometimes it would snow and a bitch's lock would snap off and fall and I'd have dreadlocks on the ground <laughs> in the snow. So I had to learn how to tie some shit up. That's basically what I'm trying to tell y'all. I had to handle my business. Fashion, but a necessity, a fashion necessity. <laughs> <laughs> then we got my man, Chris Derrick in the house in the building. What's up, Chris? Welcome to the show. Right What's up, man? Out there doing big things on your show. We, we're proud of you. You know, we're about I'm to doing good. I'm, I'm doing real it. good. I got some exciting, exciting stuff to do. Nice. Soon. I got clowned so hard yesterday. It's not even what? funny. It's not what actually it? on Friday. It's not even funny. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, yeah. So we had, we had this, you know, like this, because uh, we started production, right? Right. And we had, we had this uh, this like uh, this work this this respectable workplace seminar, you know. So it was like uh, three hundred people on the call. They're like asking people to like you know to so so, so they go over these scenarios mm -hmm. about you know like like bad behavior kind of things, you know. And I, and so to me, I was like, well, I'm gonna put it on mute because it was on mute. And I'm gonna put just you know not see my screen. And I was doing sit-ups, you know, through the whole time, you know. <laughs> and then he called on me to, to respond to, like, what was going on. Like, right. hey, Chris, yeah. can you, can, you know, can you, I was like, what? What? I saw, so, like, I had to run up and, like, hit the thing. And I was, like, trying to re try to catch up. And I was like, you know what? I just need some more examples on, on what the bad behavior is. And he was like, wait a minute. Can't you see that? Uh, and I was like, uh, uh. So, so like, like that wasn't too bad. But then my showrunner. He right. just like called me out on like Twitter. He was yeah, like, yeah. "You're supposed to be in the meeting right now. Why aren't you there?" And I was like, "Well, how, how you, you know, gonna be on your mission yeah. for us? My God, does anybody fail those? Can you fail that? Oh my God, no, no, you can't fail. But it's just it's not like, a test. But, yeah. but but the thing is, is it's just like there's 400 people on that call, mm. you know, and I'm looking like a fool for the 400 people. I'm like, damn man, that's not good at all. <laughs> It's not good at all. Yeah, but it's the ultimate multitasking. Yeah. It's yeah. the ultimate multitasking. Get your sit-ups in and yeah. listen to the meeting. And I bet you somebody was in there doing stomach crunches, and as soon as you got messed up, they straightened up real fast. Like, you know what? <laughs> Let me just put this avatar back on here. And yeah, that's yeah, exactly. Exactly. So. <laughs> but, you so, know, this, but the show was good. The show was really exciting. Um, you still can't tell us what it is, so that's why you haven't heard the name of it. So I apologize. Um, it's cool. You know, uh... I mean, it's it's. I'm excited. I'm I'm kind of mad that production is well, you know, because like I can't go to the set. You know, like people can't go to the set. You know, and it's like there's a lot of cool shit on the set. Um, so you know, but whatever. That's just like sour grapes kind of shit that I'm just yep. complaining about. I'm super excited. Super excited. Awesome. That's what's up. So if you guys are grown, <clears throat> let's go ahead and get into the show. So today, I thought I'd bring back some more emerging writers that I really am digging out there, doing some good stuff. And um, um, I was like, let's 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 meet a whole new group of, of writers this time. You know, some of you guys are fans of the show. Some of you've been listening for a long time. Some of you, Keena, I've known you for probably 10, 12 years. <laughs> you know, know what I mean? So if not long. longer than that. <laughs> and um, so I'm uh, really, really happy to have you guys on the show. So welcome to the show, everybody. Hey, thanks for having hey, us. Hey, thanks for having <laughs> us. Yeah. Indeed. So, indeed. Man. 
So let's go ahead and start. I'll start with you, Kina, Miss Beautiful, Miss Miss Pregnant Woman. Don't even <laughs> look like you're pregnant. Still look like you're 19 years old going on. Oh, received. I see you. Received. <laughs> received. How you doing? Welcome to the show, girl. Introduce Thank yourself. Thank you. Yes, I am Kina Ferguson. I'm so happy to be here, Hilliard. I have been listening to the show for a minute. And I, like you said, I've known you for a long time. And uh, it's just so great to like be here. I am an actor, a filmmaker, a voiceover artist, a choreographer, and then um, a mom and a wife. And then I also coach actors who want to start creating their own content. So that is uh, what I do. I love being a creative. I love doing all of the things, storytelling in front and behind the camera. And, you know, this is I'm just yeah. excited to be here to talk about this. And it's, it's been really fun to watch your career grow and to watch you. One of the things I love about you, too, is you're, you're like myself and Chris and Lisa. We don't wait for Hollywood. You go out and make your own stuff. You know Absolutely. what I mean? <clears throat> and, and how many doors have opened because you've done that, you know? Absolutely. It has been amazing. But I will just say, I got to put you on the spot in a good way, is I was starting to talk about, I remember, was it like 10 years ago you did that play, that one woman show? It was a long time ago. Uh, um, my one woman show was in 2015. 15. Okay, that's, I'm old. Um, <laughs> you old. But anyway, I remember going, being blown away, laughing, crying, every emotion. You killed that shit. Thank and you. I was glad that I was able to sit in the front row and support you. You know what I mean? That was important. Yes. So, yes. but I've watched you grow on all these shows, whether you're working with Shamar Moore or, you know, uh, 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 Stephen Dorff, whoever it is you doing. And then you came out a couple of years ago. Was it season one you did Atlanta? Or was it season two? I can't remember. Season one pilot season episode. One. Yep. And see, and I, don't, I can't remember the character's name you played, but that role was off the chain. On uh, any oh. other show, they would have brought her back several times, but that's a show that's a lot of it's very standalone. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. That yes. And there was talk about me coming back uh, initially from the director and from Donald. Like when I got on set, Donald Glover was amazing and mm -hmm. there was talk about it. But then Donald booked, um, what did he do? Star Wars, Star Trek? Uh, I'd uh, be for, right. So he booked that. So it pushed production back, which then it just, then they kind of like revamped it all. But initially they had talked about like, Let's leave you open so we can bring you back. And so I was super excited about that. But that show alone, I mean, I had a few write-ups about that character alone, which was great. But, you know, even when I booked it, I remember my agents didn't, they were like, I don't know what this show is. You know, it was, this, <laughs> you know, it was no one it. knew what it was. So they were like, I don't know what this is. And I read it and I was like, I love it. I love it. And then who knew, you know, it became such a huge hit. So it was wonderful to work with Donald and all of them. Like they were they were, their, their vision is so clear. And I think that's like the thing I love is like their vision is just so clear. And how cool is it that your scene was with Paperboy? You know, right. That was awesome. Yes. That was yes. Awesome. And he was, Brian was amazing. And we just, we just vibe. Like there's a few things in there that were just improvs. And the director was like, I'm just gonna let y'all keep, you know, doing stuff. Yeah, do it. Oh, you know? so, it's funny you so. say that because I was, I was looking at it again last night, just the scene that you have in your reel. And I was looking at that scene and I was going, oh, it's really cool because you start off one way 
Mm-hmm. And then you reverse in the end where now right. you're flirting with them. So you get to go through like all the emotions as a mother. Yes. And it's almost like, y'all kids moving. Let me get over here. Let me, right. let me, let me do something with Paperboy. <laughs> you know exactly. I mean? Like, go, go get me, go get that. my keys. Go get whatever it is. You know exactly. I mean? Go get my stuff. Let's get my yeah. blood. I'm trying to get this picture with this book. But <laughs> like, it was great. And I, one of the write-ups, that's what they said. They were like, I love how they're taking characters like in one scene, literally going from like start to finish, yeah. like you to totally make art in that yeah. scene. Yes, it was beautiful. So it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. That's, the yeah thing was... I, that's, that's the thing I love about that show is because the tertiary characters are so fascinating. Like with that show, literally, you could follow any of those characters, even if they're like the co-starring or the guest star character, and they would have a whole fleshed out thing. And there's many times where I would just be upset, where I would see a character and be like, "But what happened?" And then it'd be a new episode, and then you never see him again. If it's like, I love that character, but then every week there was always a new character, but that's that's one of the brilliance of that show that I really appreciate is just the, you know, just little characters, small co-starring roles. You see them and they're just so you just want to just latch on and follow them. You know, yeah. that character, your character could have had a whole show with them kids dealing with stuff in there. And yes. I would I and I would have watched it. Yes. And, yes. and, paper, and paperwork could have come through every now and then. We could have seen all the other characters. And like, OK, Darius, we see you. And then just kept it moving. But that's just the brilliance of that show. Oh, I'm so upset. Yeah. I'm not going to see it again because now he's so super famous now that oh, I won't God. get my boys back together anymore. So anyway. <laughs> <sighs> but I'm glad. Oh, is Atlanta done? Did I miss something? Yeah, it's probably done because he's doing that new show. Yeah. Oh, all right, 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 right. Yeah, Mr. Anyway, and Mrs. Smith. Anyway, right. Kena, you, 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 yeah. you showed your bridge. You brought it out. So you know, being the pilot, you pretty much set the tone. So you need to take credit yeah. for that. No, it was it was <laughs> okay. Great. I mean, it was a great. I was like, this is a great guest star. And once I got on there, like I said, they were Donald was like, we're gonna bring you back. And you know, again, things happen. So you're like, it's fine. But it was great to be in that. And you know, that that at least set me up for people to see I could do other things right. than what right. I was normally cast for. And then, of course, after that, you get all of the, like, ghetto mama roles that people want exactly. to come in for. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I could never get an audition for that before. And after that, yeah. it's like, yeah, everyone. all the yeah. ghetto mamas. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chris, it's funny because you have that character in your tattoo movie. Who's, who's Yes. I started thinking about Kena because when I was watching that last night, I was going, oh, Kena would kill this role. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we're um, we going to be talking. No, for sure. For we'll sure. Talk. For sure. For sure. Don't sound hesitant. I would have. I would. I'm gonna kill it. Don't sound hesitant, Chris. <laughs> no, I'm just trying to think about like because it's been a scared. minute since I've. Scared. It's been a minute since I've seen that Atlanta pilot. You know, so I mean, um, I remember it, and I it's remember you in it. It's technically the pilot because they called it the pilot only because remember when they first aired it, they aired two episodes. Uh, I'm in episode uh, two, okay. but right, they right, still right. called it the pilot and they yeah, just broke it in the, it's the it's Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's that part, you know, I, I, I remember you. I'm just trying to like think about you and then think about what the role is and that's kind of how I, you know. I see you her real it's, Look, look, let me tell you right now. It's an interesting fucking role in the movie. I would tell you that. You know what's funny? I'll tell you this is funny. Is that when you write stuff, um, it's, it, I mean, this, I can't say too much about this movie, but when you, it happens a lot when, at least when I write stuff, I always, there's always some character who's not supposed to be big. Right. But, beca- but then I have a lot of fun with that person on the page and everyone's like, oh, we need to see more of that person. I was like, well, I mean, that's the character role. That's not the star role. 
But this movie's got a lot of real roles like that. So just by, by design. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. That's, you know, like, that's good. You know, like, 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 that's a good thing to put in my ear, Hillier. That's a very yeah. good thing to put in you my know, ear. You know, when we get to casting, I'll be letting you know. Don't worry about it. Um, so anyway, thank you, Kina. Let's bring to the yes. show uh, Amadou Diallo. That's how you say it? You're on mute, Amadou. Yep, that's exactly right. What's, what's up, man? Welcome to the show. I appreciate you. You've been you've been hounding a brother all on Twitter. What you doing? What you wearing and stuff? Yeah. <laughs> it's it, only it's it. only coast talking if they call the police. So. <laughs> <laughs> but look, thank you, man. I appreciate you supporting the show. You've been a really good fan. Um, you and da- you and Danielle in, in particular, and Larry hits me like every week. He got some shit to say <laughs> about whatever. Um, so anyway, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm going to do, why don't you tell everybody what you do and uh, what, what you're up to? Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Um, yeah, so I'm a, a drama writer, TV, starting to write. I'm actually working on my first feature right now, but TV is where most of my portfolio is lying at the minute. Um, so I think sort of my journey into screenwriting is is kind of interesting because it's it's kind of a winding path. Like, um, I started my career as like a jazz musician, like a jazz saxophonist. Like I moved to New York when I was 18, you know, to become a working musician. So I got, I was fortunate enough to, to go on the road, work in some bands, got to go to Europe and stuff nice. at a really early age. Um, you know, and just be around a lot of old heads, which was incredible, you know, guys who had, had been around when like train and, you know, and, and, uh, Dinah Washington and all that were big. So you got a lot of history and knowledge. Um, after that, I started writing more like music, like arranging for the bands that I was working in, composing music, uh, went back to grad school, uh, studied classical composition. So did some things there. And then, um, actually started to move into photography, uh, sort of a off chance, like my, my now wife, when we first met, she invited me to go visit her family back in Bangladesh. So I got a camera, took some pictures there and, you know, it was, Rent darkroom time, developing, show them to some friends of mine I knew who were in photography, got some really positive feedback and, you know, went on to have a couple of solo shows in Manhattan, sort of got my foothold a little bit in like the fine art photography world. And hey, then hey, once one sec, I'm gonna do Chris, he trying to copy your stealer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean he's trying. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, Go ahead, so, I don't yeah. have the background as the saxophonist, so you know, but that's a background uh, that I wish I would have had because I uh, I played that a little bit in high school and didn't stay up with it. Um, but that's dope, man. That's real dope. Yeah. So after that, I um I started. You know, I wrote a couple of photography books, so I was able to you know be like a published author. So that kind of opened up some doors in the writing world and moved into journalism. So started covering like technology, gadgets, things like that. Then moved into more straight journalism. I was fortunate enough when Al Jazeera America was around, like I was writing for them and we were doing stuff like writing about prison profiteering, like money in politics, like real heavy hitting stuff. Um, and, you know, now I write mostly about education, but that sort of led up to what I'm doing now with screenwriting. And it's funny, like those are three different things, but they're all really related, I feel like. Like they're all storytelling. Like if you're up on the bandstand with the horn, like your number one job is to tell a story to that audience. Photography, obviously the story, a narrative with still images and then journalism, you know, just like with screenwriting, you gotta hook people in, you gotta, you know, give them the who, what, why, where, when. Um, 
And most importantly, you learn to work with an editor so you don't get too precious about your words. You learn how to accept feedback, which I kind of took for granted, actually. As I started to get into screenwriting and hanging around folks in writers groups, I just assumed everybody knew when you get feedback, you just like shut up, listen, smile and say thank you when it's done. And uh, no, 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 it's 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 different because everyone feels they need to defend their work when they're writing and in, in screenplays, you know, because um, uh, for some reason, it, it, I, I, I look at it as like, I, there's a sense of it's, it's personal in a way that maybe journal, people think journalism isn't, you know, um, which is not true because, you know, because, you know, the story you're doing is something that has to speak to you or otherwise you're going to kind of fuck it up. Um, but it's, but I, you look, that's a great point. I mean, look, last summer I had this, this essay I wrote about my experience with the police. I got that published and I had to work with an editor like on that, you know? Um, cause it was like, I mean, like, I think the, the, the initial submission was like 7,000 words. And then the wow. guy was like, well, can we bring it down to 4,000? And I was yeah, like, yeah. what? Yeah. And then I talked with a, a buddy of mine who had done a lot of like journalism, like, a lot for maybe 10 years and he was like look think of it as like a producer you know you know what basically they want to be heard and then you got to be able to figure out like how to you know um you have to do to, 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 to listen to what they're saying and you have to take some of the notes and then you got to still you know like like make sure that that what's there is still what you want there i mean for me it was interesting because like i had to say to myself i'm you know what i won't do to first i had to negotiate to say well look i'll do five thousand words i'm, I'm not going to mm -hmm. do four that's too much which yeah. which caused me to go back to rewrite huge chunks of it to really streamline it down so i'd have to because because he was like i'll oh, cut all this cut all this i was like whoa whoa whoa, whoa. Yeah. we ain't cutting that story i just gotta like write it more succinctly but it's one of those things where you know there's there's, there's a great learning lesson about how to work with someone who is communicating with an audience, you know, like very effectively uh, in, in terms of like working with an editor. And that doesn't happen a lot when you're uh, starting your, like your writing career because you have other writers who are giving you feedback or potentially, you know, like it might be a producer too or, or a low level development exec. Um, and but particularly if you're in like the, these writers groups, it's like I think to a degree you might, be suspicious about them like well, well why did not you get what the hell i wrote right you know, the thing um and it you know it's it it, it takes a, a bunch of times like actually like like meeting and developing with people who could who could say yes and see your project go forward to understand what they are doing by giving you a note because one of the things i say to everyone all the time is the 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 distance between what's in your head and what's on your page yeah. is the craft, and and the, and the and the ability to shorten that is how you get better, you know, like as a writer. And that's but here's the thing, though, is like you never like in my experience as a journalist and as a screenwriter, like there's never a downside to like trimming your stuff, you know what I mean, or getting feedback or suggestions to do it because a 
you if you have a real story, like it can always be told in a slightly different way, slightly more succinct way. It might not be exactly the same, but it'll still be a story if it's strong enough. And then even if you push back on it and you're like, no, but I this is my line in the sand. I can't I have to keep this This is my baby. Then you have that conviction carrying with you with that story. So either you got something that's shorter and tighter or you got something that's like, fuck it. This is what it is. Maybe everybody won't get it, but I'm 100 percent, 100 percent committed to it. You know, and I, I think I mean it's a skill, but it's also something like you learn you learn the value of it. Like you were saying about your piece cut, like I had a pilot that I got commissioned from the New York Times to turn into like a short story for a Sunday Times edition. They this is like an hour long pilot. They wanted three thousand three thousand words, right? That's crazy. <laughs> then I gave them three thousand. They were like, "Ah, oh, this is cool. Could you do it like uh, eighteen hundred words?" And I wrestled with it for a day. And I was just like, at the end of the day, I was like, no, I can't. Like, I'm look, I don't want to lose this opportunity. It'd be great. You got all these heavy hitters in here. I'd be great to be included. But I can't do 800. I could give you like 20, 2,800. That's all I can do. And then they were like, okay, cool. 2,800 is fine. See, yeah. See, see, that's the thing, you know, is is, is that the one thing my friend, this is, this is Cole Haddon here. I, mm-hmm. I keep, he was kind of like, sometimes they're telling you to cut. It doesn't matter, you know, movies, editors, to test you, to see how well you'll bend. Because if they know that you'll bend, like, bend over completely on something, they're like, oh, we can get this guy, we can get this girl. But, 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 if, but, but if you give that kind of pushback and go, well, I'm not going to do all that, but I'll do this, they actually kind of respect you more at that point, you know? Or they ask somebody else. They're like, okay, we'll get the space from somebody else who said they'll cut, like, another 2,000 words in their piece, you know? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, this, yeah, there's lots, there's, there's lots of Thanks, work. Sure, let's move on to Daniel and we'll jump on to Larry. So introduce yourself, Daniel, Nick, Danielle, Nikki. <laughs> I'm Danielle, Nikki. I, like Lisa, I wash my locks on Sunday, so my hair is all up and <laughs> wrapped up. <laughs> but um, my screenwriting journey goes back about 10 years. Um, young mother, we had three kids within three years and in my early 20s. So my whole focus in life went from whatever I wanted to whatever needed to happen with my kids and my family. And I went through some some tough times in, in trying to find myself. I was like, all right, let me go back to school, get a different degree, let me go do something. And I ended up taking a film appreciation class and the teacher, we had, we had to write a a whole lot of papers, you know, analyze films. And at the end, he was like, have you ever considered screenwriting? And I honestly had no idea it was even a job. I don't know who I thought wrote the words that, you know, the keenest of the world said, but I was like, oh, how do you do that? He said, just go home and read a whole bunch of screenplays. You don't have to go to film school. Just read some screenplays, learn structure and get started. And, you know, before that, I had thought I wanted to be a writer. I tried writing, you know, prose, but it didn't go very well. And once I read my first screenplay, I was hooked. I was like, this is, this is my medium. Do you remember what that was, Danielle? Yeah, it was uh, Juno. Oh, great script to read. Yeah, sure. Great script, right? And I already loved the movie. So it just being able to read the words and I could see the movie in my head, I knew that that was, you know, the direction for me. So, you know, I started just writing really, really shitty, shitty, shitty pilots and, you know, just (laughs) getting them out. And, um, you know, but my kids were small, so it wasn't 
a career path. It was something I did for me. It was the only time in my life when I wasn't a mother, I wasn't a wife, I wasn't an employee. I was just Danielle and I could, you know, go into my little bubble before work or after work and just do it. And so that's, I think, what took so long. But then my kids are older now. They're about to graduate and, you know, moving on to bigger, better things. And so I, a few years ago, I said, you know what, I'm going to really hunker down on this and, and really tell the types of stories that I want to tell because I was telling other people's stories. I wasn't seeing, you know, telling the stories that I wanted to see on screen. And you could tell whenever I got feedback from people, it was like, oh, you know, it was all right. You know, <laughs> but then <laughs> once I started, you know, see, like sitting down and saying, what am I trying to say and who am I trying to say it to? That's kind of when things started to, to move forward for me. So. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to be interrupting you a lot. I've been yeah. having a conversation, so I apologize. Mm -hmm. um, so what would you say are those things now that you notice that you are writing now? Like, what what type of themes are you talking about, for example? You know I mean? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing was I wasn't writing Black protagonists. I was writing uh, what I, I saw on TV. You know, it's like, right now, I tell stories mostly with black women protagonists doing things that I normally don't get to see on screen. For example, a black Russian sleeper agent, you know, so I, who's going to show that? So, but, you know, I had- Talk to Richard Scott, that's what you have to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't, that original script, when I first wrote it, probably six years prior, it had a white protagonist and it was, it was very cookie cutter because that wasn't my experience. I was able to take my experience and throw it into this character, even though I'm not a Russian spy. So that was the biggest thing for me was just, you know, changing the POV, you know, from who I was telling these stories from. That's, that's the key, too. I love that. Awesome. Danielle, I love that your teacher was like, you don't need to go to film school. Just read a bunch of scripts because most people are like, this, this is the direction. But the fact that he got that, like, you read this, you can, you know, do, do screenwriting. Exactly. Exactly. I was so surprised because he was a screenwriting teacher and he was like, no, no, no. Because I was like, do I need to get into your class? He said, no, no, no. Just go on. You know, he's like, you can find almost any yeah. screenplay you want on online. Just go down. He actually told me to download a hundred screenplays and read them. And um, I probably have hit a hundred now. <laughs> but, you know, I only needed that one to get me started, right. you know, because yeah. I knew that that was my path. Awesome. I think that's great. Um, what about you, Larry? Well, my thing is this. I've been writing for a long time. As you can see, my beard is gray and gray and black. <laughs> Salt and pepper. Um, the thing about everything I've, I've tried, everything I've learned is I, I've, I've heard some stuff in the rant room that have just stuck to me like glue. Especially stuff I've heard Chris say, things I've heard you say, Chris Hillier, at least. That's why. No, but <laughs> again, I've heard Chris say something to the effect of, at the end of the day, is this thing any good? Is it any good? Because we all have an audience. And when I say that, I mean the writer has to get somebody to like it. The producer has to get somebody to like it. The executive has to get somebody to like it. So as I've, as I've emailed Hillier time after time and says, hey man, I got, I got this off the two producers and one loves it, one hates it. 
you know, one is, you know, and you get all, like Chris said, you get all of these notes, but what do they really mean? Is it going to make it, is it going to make it good? Lisa, you know what I'm saying? Is it, is it going to change it? Do I want to bastardize what I had to get in this door? Or can I wait? Because at the end of the day, if you have a vision for something, this door closes, if it's really good, as I've heard all three of you guys in the rant room say, somebody down the road is going to notice that it's good. So you don't necessarily, as an emerging writer, have to think, this door is the only door that I have to get in. I think you have to sit there and believe that, okay, I believe in this one thing. Even if you take that screenplay and push it to the side, or take you start, but to me, by no means do you want to. And we've all done this. We've got stuff. You got a manager, and they say, "I'm going to take this thing out." Or even if you're doing it. And to be honest with you, now I've heard this on the rant room. You are your biggest, biggest, biggest person that's going to make this thing happen. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen because you did it. And I, I, I'm pretty sure I've heard Hilliard, Chris, and Lisa say some of the rooms you've gotten in, you've gotten them in yourself in that room i've heard other writers say that you know and because a lot of times uh you know new new writers come along and they think if i can only get this connection or only get this manager but i got news for everybody man if the shit is good if it's dope what it what it, you know the to me the most provocative line i heard in a recent film was when dr dre's character in straight out of compton was talking to easy e and easy, remember he said, "Man, we can't let Jerry go, man. You know, Jerry, man, he the one hooked us in, hooked us up." And you know, Dr. Dre said, "Man, we didn't make it because of Jerry. We made it because our shit was dope." Yeah, and that's what that to me. When you have an intellectual property, when you have a story, when you're writing things, when you're writing a short story, when you're writing a novel, a novella, whatever you're doing, you have to believe in it enough. And then when the time is right for it, not when, oh man, I got this executive that want to read it. Not that, fuck that. When the time is right for it, it's going to be seen. Really yeah, close, I, 20 years? I don't interrupt you, but it's like, I, you know, this is my friend Abdul Williams who told me this. You know, and, and he and, and he just had the Salt and Pepper movie on recently, and uh, and he was like, you know, every project, not every project, but most projects, if it's on, unless that person has a deal, you know, like at that studio or at that network or something like that, is is th that project has been pitched to everybody big in town, and they said no, and someone said yes. So if you see a movie at like you know, Warner Brothers, then the other places all said no to it, you know? Or if they didn't say no, I mean, there maybe it's a bidding war and, and, and then and so-and-so paid more for it, you know? If you're taking a TV project out, I mean, you fucking go to like five or six to 10 different places, you know, the networks and streamers and, and, and people are like, ah, ah, and then someone says yes, you know? And, it's, and, and, and Ed was always saying, you just need one person to say yes at the right place. And the thing is, you know, that's so, so you can't think that there's just gonna be like, there's one path, like Larry's saying. You can't think there's just gonna be like, um, this one person is gonna, particularly if they're like an executive or something like that, because they could lose their job. Like, the worst thing to happen to you, the worst thing to happen to you, it's happened to me, like, uh, I think three different times where 
you like take a project to someplace, the executive gets excited, they might buy it, but then they get fired and, and the new person is like, yeah, I didn't feel that or, you know, like, uh, like I'm not invested in it enough or just all, all sorts of shit and then the project dies because the main person who could say yes or no, you know, is, you know, hasn't seen it yet. So, you know, so there's always that problem of like what, you know, so you can't feel like, like you said, Larry, like, you, oh, I, I, I like I have to get into this person right now because opportunity is going to close. It's not going to close. And that's so interesting because I literally just read that. I watched Sound of Metal last night mm. and I anytime I watch a movie, I like to like go back and read the articles from writers, directors. And, you know, again, that was another 10 year project that, yep. you know, the guy that was helped shepherding that was telling people like, this is great. He is, and you know what I mean? But people were like, yeah, but what's he done? But what's he done? You know? And then same, same thing you're saying, he had taken it to everybody. And this one company was like, yes. And yeah. then he said the day before the money like dropped out and he had to like make one phone call. And he said that morning they wired the rest of that money. He's like, I had 50 people on set and we did not have the rest of the funding wow. until that morning. And they ended up wiring cash without a contract, which he said was just, you know, which I believe too, kind of what you're saying, Larry, like when it's aligned, it's aligned. And one of the things that that writer and director said was, I knew that if this project was to be made, it would find its way. And he said that morning, although he was like, I don't know, but when that money came through cash, no contract, he was like, I know it's meant to be made, you know? Exactly. And I think sometimes we just have to remember that, you know, there is, you know, whatever your beliefs are, you know, you have to, you have to know that there is an alignment for your project. Right. Yeah, I, I had something before you continue, Larry. Just one, one thing to that. I'm in it right now. So you guys know I wrote the Black Wall Street script, right? And it goes out everywhere. Everybody's interested. Nobody's pulled the trigger, right? I've even gotten to places who already have a Black Wall Street script, and then they want to do mine over it, right? That has happened. Here's the problem. We're in, it's all of Lisa and Chris, and Lisa and Chris and I talk about this every week, the climate, especially when you're talking about certain topics, right? We're in a climate now where us black people, all of us are black folks, a lot of black people don't want to see themselves in that world right now, you know, especially coming out of what happened with um, George Floyd, Floyd and, and, and all those other people. So we're dealing with that. Like I literally had a big producer, a big black producer saying, this is one of the best scripts I've seen in forever. I don't know if I want to live in this for two years. That's the thing that writers don't always understand is it's wow. not the material isn't why you don't get the green light. It's about the producer wanting to sit in that for two years. You know what I mean? Because you got to watch the dailies and the, and the rough cuts and the, all that. And you're going to see all this every day. You know, you got to deal with this world. And if you're already seeing it in your real life, and then you got to deal with it on the screen. You got to be willing to go with it. You wonder why a lot of white folks do these movies? There you go. Why? It's not. That's it doesn't so affect them as much yeah. as it does us. Yeah, yeah. You know that's what I mean? interesting. Go ahead, Larry. See, that's important. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm gonna do you. That's, that's exactly. And and when you think of that, you think of timing, and you think of think about this. There are movies. There are films that have been shot and stuffed away somewhere. Then when something happens, right, Lisa? They go, now it's time to, the executive at studio such and such goes, yeah, now we can dump that out on the street. You know, it's very deep. Like last night, and I, I sent Hilliard, I sent the rant room an invite, and I know it was out of state, but I had a private screening of Judas and the Black Messiah. 
Now, that was that has to me is one of the most powerful films I've seen in a long, long time. Great movie, great movie. Proud of Ryan Coogler, very proud of Daniel Kalula, Lakeith Stanfield. You know, it was a very deep movie. But you know what was interesting, Hillier? There were everybody that contacted me to RSVP. They were on the fence, and I and I understand. And you know, I've emailed you about, hey man, theaters are going to come back. Theaters are going to come back. But I want to know from you and Lisa and and and, and everybody on this panel, because to me, to me, that one guy that told me, yeah, man, well, I saw it. You know, I saw it last night, and blah 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 blah. I said, but it's not the same. It's not the same. We found out various things and the audience went but the audience laughed you cannot get that in your fucking living room it is not the same and I want to no. okay well I tell you about this all the time at the end when she was shaking him and no spoiler I want to give a spoiler but when she shook him at the end everybody in my row cried people were wiping tears and I'm getting emotional now you cannot get that in your living room so I want to know you guys Thoughts on that? Because it's not the same. Go ahead, Chris. Well, I talk about this constantly. Uh, you know, like the thing about movies, as opposed to television, is the presentation format of a movie on a large screen with an audience with people in the dark that you don't know or that you do know <coughs> creates an creates an emotional atmosphere that is um, it's almost impossible to replicate at home uh i mean i say this all the time particularly with com the things that really spike your emotions so like comedy horror you know those things don't it's like the thing about emotions like that is we are beings that send off energy we we know this right so it's it's this and and the, and the more of us that are together that energy wave is constantly there and the thing that's gonna like frighten you might not frighten me, but the fact that you're frightened and, and that energy is that little is you know comes out is is it, it's going to be in the atmosphere. Yep. So the next time there's the big jump, then you know then we're both going to go, and then the next time there's going to be five people doing it. And the same thing with comedy, like like comedy is never as funny at home as it is in the theater because someone's going to laugh at a different joke than you. That's going to prime the pump. Someone's going to have a fucked up funny laugh that's going to make you laugh when you hear yep. it. You know, yep. there's all these things that that cause that that make the 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 the, the cinema experience entirely different. I think that people have have kind of like you know, uh, I think in the last 10, 12 years that has been uh, diminished because of the rise of home video and how people like to watch this because because they don't like to be bothered by going to the theater and the price of the theater and stuff like that. But I say all that I've been saying this for years. For for literally decades now, it's like this. The cinema is like a, is like going to church, like like that feeling of everybody there. This large scale kind of like this emotional experience. I was telling someone the other day, like the, you know, yeah, the thing about a movie is different than a television. Is a lot of times there might be these logic leaps in a movie that, in retrospect, you might question, but at the time. If you are on the emotional ride, you are okay with that because a movie's like prime purpose is to is to take uh -huh. you on this emotional journey. Whereas when you watch television, 
it takes you an emotional journey, but but the logic has got has to be there in a different way because you're there and you like you focus on it slightly differently. And I mean, look, I want movies to come back. I mean, like the theaters to come back. I don't know if they're gonna come back the same way. I mean, it was really awesome that that shit last month with the GameStop and AMC, like you know, propped up AMC so 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 they didn't have to go bankrupt and shit like that. So you know, so those things can last. But I feel like people might have a this, this renewed respect for the actual theater experience now that we've been cooped up in our house watching you everything at, at the house for like... Can, the, the one thing you cannot do is replicate the communal experience in your house. You can have relatives, a couple family members, and you can have like a little moment. But like Chris said, it's like going to church and there's nothing like the communal experience of going to a movie with black folk. I don't, I don't care... What theory do you go to? It could be all white folk. It could be all Asian folks. There is nothing on this planet. And I've been in other countries with different types of black folk in the diaspora. So I know this is genetic. <laughs> okay. I have been in St. Thomas in a movie theater watching a movie with black folk. All right. <laughs> I have been in Europe in a theater with black folk. And anytime a black movie come out for, you know, real talk, if, if, if we were back in the olden days of the before times, I would be at the Crenshaw Mall watching Judas and the Messiah right. because I need to have certain black experiences, just like when Black Panther came out. I had to be a black folk to see that because that was a church moment. And there's a reason why black people, we joke about this, but there's a reason why black folks say things about bringing people to the cookout. You don't bring everybody to the cookout. The cookout is a respectable family sacred space where we can cut loose, where we can share stories, where we can share memories, where we can talk about the future, especially if you have relatives that come over that are pregnant, there's little kids running around. That kind of experience is the experience you have when you go to a movie theater. And to see something that, and I don't know what rock people have been under to talk about. You're giving a spoiler alert. About Brad Hep like, bitch, come on, come on. Really? Like the movie tells you it's COINTELPRO and FBI and it's black. So you know somebody died at the end. Come on. You already know that. I don't know why people act like we give them spoiler alert. It was black people in the FBI. Shit done went sideways. But the title alone. The title alone. And the total. Judas, Judas and the Judas black, and Messiah. black Messiah. What happened to Jesus? Judas put his ass in the ground or, you know, or, 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 or put him on the damn, the damn yeah. crucifix. You know, you know what the challenge is, though? Like, yeah. Definitely everything you're saying, the communal experience, I think the challenge now is you've got a generation, like we all know what that communal experience is, right? Because we're like grown folks, but you've got a whole generation coming up now that's been consuming it all on their phones and tablets. So the challenge is how do you get that generation of young kids to even know that there's something that they're missing, right? I mean, people talk about that with like vinyl to CDs and then CDs to MP3s and how do you really know what that sounds like? But but real people who really love it, real people who really love cinema and respect it, you do all of it. I still do vinyl and CD and streaming. I still watch a lot of stuff. The thing that's different about me going to a movie theater as opposed to streaming in my house in the comfort, because you know I don't like people that much. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, if I get out and I'm around you, it's because I really like you and I appreciate you. But most of the times, I'm not trying to fuck with people that much because the introvert in me can't take it that much. That's why I like cinema. It's like that alone time, that be able to see world and not have to really get with folk. But you have to have a compelling story because that's the only way I'm going to go to the theater. I'm still going to do streaming, but I am still going to go to the theater. And what's going to get my butt in the theater is you better have something that I want to have the communal experience. 
I want to see something I've never seen before. And I want to, to be around folks and see something different that I'm not going to be able to have if I'm sitting at home and streaming on a small screen or my computer. I think the idea now is not so much to lament that, oh, these younger people are just, they're just doing streaming. No, they're going to do all the things that I do, but you have to give them something that they're not going to be able to have if they're watching it at home or on their small screen. And like I said, people are like, I, I still go to movies when I could, but I tell you what, the movies I did go see, they had to be something that I knew I was never going to be able to enjoy on a smaller screen, whether that be tentpole movies or black historic things or black fantastic things that I got to I got to have the experience with other black people so I can sit there and know that I was there when shit like I'm going to have stories 50 years from now sitting in there talking about Black Panther. I'm going to have stories to tell people like I remember what it smells like. I remember how my hair was. I know what we were doing. I know that feeling. I have the, the, the ticket stubs. You can't get that with every movie, but people are still going to go to the theaters. What we have to do as writers is give them something that is just so compelling and spectacular that you can't, can't have that experience at home. But I, think, sure. but I think what you're saying is such a good point, though, because they don't even know that they need to see. I think, like, the point is they don't even know that they need to see it there and that it'll be. I think not only... because. To me, it's already always our jobs to give them a good, compelling story, whoever you're writing for, whatever you're writing for. But I think that point you made, which I hadn't thought about, is true, is because kids are used to being isolated, period, because now they have phones. So they don't even know. I mean, you hear these kids saying, like, it's why they get in groups and can't have conversations because they only know how to text. So it is like, how do you transform kids to understand that this is a different and a better way so that they can incorporate it with their isolated time? I... And that's a good point. I'm not well, sure. Well, it's, well it's, here's the thing. Well, okay, here's the thing. All of us grew up at a time when home video was nascent. And it was kind of like the only way that we could see stuff was, most stuff was theater. You know, and it was kind of like, and, 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 the, and the, video, the home video became... Like the rise of home video, you know, is something that, that we all probably witnessed and how it eclipsed everything. The thing is, is that, you know, what happened, what, the thing I noticed a lot in the 90s is parents would use these, you know, like the VCR as like a babysitter, you know? So there's this whole thing where kids grew up like primarily watching like, you know, like the recent films on like you know you know like a home video like format and they and it was just and they, so so for them it's like a constant thing to see it just on a screen to not have to go to the theater you know, i think you make a great point about you know it's hard it's hard to get people to know how to communicate outside of a text because it because it requires like this like immediate kind of response and you have to be able to say it because you know because with the text you're like well I'm gonna wait ten minutes and figure out the absolute best thing to say, you know. But you don't, you can't do, you can't. Someone asks you a question in real life, you can't pause for ten minutes and go. And there's no nuance. I don't know, text. you know. So just yeah, there's no nuance, there's no body language, there's all this kind of stuff that is interesting. I mean, and it does affect how people like watch, 
you know, it's, it does affect how people watch their stories. And you're absolutely right. It's like, you know, it's it's our job in general to make stuff that is compelling to see. I mean, it's, it's, it's really about, like, are you going to create something that is going to occupy my time? It, and to me, it doesn't and, matter if it's yeah, like... Yeah, and you're trapped. And think about it, Chris. You're trapped in the theater. Like, it's not like at home where you can pause and get up and distract it. Like, when you're in the theater, that's why it's like you got to hurry up and use the bathroom. Like I like I time myself. It's like if I'm gonna drink the soda, I'm gonna be in the theater 20 minutes for a start so I can see the credits. I'm gonna drink my soda, but I'm gonna get up and go to the bathroom and then make sure I'm good because I don't want to get up. And the worst feeling in the world is when you have to like go and like you're oh, is this the time to go to the bathroom? So literally, literally, you're, 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 yeah, yeah, you're like you're trapped. <laughs> and there's been times when my poor bladder is like I'm dying and I'm like I am not moving because I something's about to pop off. So it changes the way that you interact with the work when you have to watch it from start to finish, undistracted, nothing. It's like, and it's difficult for people with ADHD. It's like you are forced to like, you, you're going to have to deal with this stuff. But I don't know. I think I'm hopeful with young people. It's kind of like, like when we talked about vinyl, you can love the same thing on film, but you know, I've watched stuff on DVD and VHS, but if it pops up, and the Hollywood, if any time the Egyptian theater had a re-release of something, my ass was going out there to go look at it. Even though I haven't seen the shit like a lot of times, or I've seen it on a smaller screen, I have to go see it. It's like with your vinyl records. Ain't nothing like playing P-Funk on vinyl compared to listening it, you know, on iTunes or something else. There's something about the crackle, the feeling. There's different ways of interacting with the artwork. And but I just think like that they're... You know, yeah, I mean? that's the danger yeah. is like we can create all the stuff we want that's compelling that has to be seen on a big screen. But if the business model to support it isn't there, like technology never goes backwards. Yeah, you can go buy vinyl stuff now, but you're talking twenty five, thirty dollars a pop. So who does that cut out? Like the kid with no money, like he can't do that. So all yeah. he's got is like the iTunes thing that AT&T bundled with his phone family. And this is where, right? So the this danger is, is like no matter point. what we write. Yeah. Where's the avenue going to be for the people that we write for to be able to see it? And like I said, technology never goes backwards. Like you had a harpsichord, then you had a piano. And after that, nobody was saying, let's bring the harpsichord back. You know, like that's just how it works. I like like to say this. I kind of, I kind of, I disagree totally with this millennial thing. My first thing is this. Stop. We need to stop looking at technology and recognize the freaking hood. Because when they sell Jordans, the line is down the street. Right, Chris? True that. It's time for us to get out of there. The line is wrapped around the school. When the black movies come out, the lines are off the hook. When we say those things, we sound like the executives when we wanted to make movies in the 80s believe that like Lisa said it's a different when you when your date wants to get the frick out of the house and you pull out your phone and say hey let's watch it on and no it don't work like that I got it I got a millennial but he's maybe a little younger than a millennial they, they don't sit around to me we gotta look at people need things to do it is not about technology to the point where to me let's put it perspective of our movies that they say don't travel. And I like to hear the Rant Room's uh, perspective on that. Well, those movies are not going to sell in Europe and overseas with these these black leads. How often do we hear that? 
But yeah, as said, he sat in the room with executives, and him people have the paperwork showing the numbers and say, well, what about this? You know, that's all I would say to the millennial thing and the technology thing. A date is a date. I don't care if it's 2021 or 1921. If you take your date out to the movies and it costs a nickel or it costs 50 bucks, you're taking them on a date. And the damn movies is the best date that there ever has been and there ever will be. Dinner and a <laughs> right, Grand <Brent> Room. <laughs> All right, Larry. Well, well, right. Larry, 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 ready to get up out the house? Like we going to the movies, y'all. We getting this dinner. We this shit better stop pretty soon. We going. I'm with you. Let me ask you a question about ahead, the, about all the streaming services, right? So, you know, obviously as an actor and then as a writer director, I'm always like, I love that there's so much streaming, right? There's so many avenues for TV, and TV we all know has come so far because. Now you have all the movie stars who used to look down on TV going, I want my TV show, right? That is completely changed. Do you think there's going to become a, a time or a place where it could be too saturated with too much TV yeah. and too much content? Or yeah. do you think, yeah? It's, I mean, I mean, like, like, honestly, it's like that now. To, I mean, to me, because, you know, I, there's, there, I mean, number one, who has the time to, to, to stay up with everything, right? You know? And then, I mean, for me, it's like I tend to not watch a lot of stuff maybe in the last two years, three years, because uh, it's like I'd rather do my own stuff, you know? I mean, I can see what people are doing kind of early on off the poster and go, that's not for me, you know, or that's cool, but it's like, but, you know, I'd rather, I, I, I'll spend the time working on my own stuff at, at the time. But I still feel like at times there's too much stuff to watch, you know, and it's like, oh, I can't keep up, you know, and, and then well, what and goes then along with that is the FOMO that comes along with everybody else's watch that. And you're like, wait a minute, I haven't watched that. And everybody says it's so great. And I don't have time to catch up on that. Or that even worse, everybody loves it and you don't. Yeah, and, and I don't, word of mouth is really key in the last two years. Like I said, like I said in the last, I think it was the last episode, Hilliard, or maybe the episode before, where I said most of the stuff that I've loved and like thought was the best thing I saw last year was stuff, not because I found it, because it was like literally there is too much stuff. It was through word of mouth. It was strong exactly. word of mouth. It was close friends saying, no girl, do it right now. Here's the, here's the bootleg code for you to watch it for free. You have to watch this. And then once I watched, I'm like, okay, let me pay my little money to get the rest of the episodes, you know? And it was like, word of mouth, it's, it's going back to old school. It's not even, it's not like the old days where you could see like the poster or the commercials on TV, because most people really aren't watching TV anymore. And it's not like the old days where you have the three networks and we were all held hostage to whatever they put up. And most of us, honestly, that's how we found out about movies. A commercial came by, oh, or if you went to the movie theater, they'd have the new ones like we still have now. You'll see the upcoming stuff. How do you find those people when everyone is streaming and not watching TV the way they used to? And word of mouth is going to be everything. And I think that's why it's important for writers and artists and people who are creating these films to cultivate their fan base early on. You know, that means interacting with people. You know, even if you don't have a product right now, you're working on something, showing up at festivals, you know, online festivals nowadays, you know, um, interacting with other writers and talking about things and getting your name out there so that when you do have something, they'll remember it. Because I'm telling you right now, they can show me all kinds of stuff on streaming that I do watch. I don't trust nothing 
unless somebody said to me, girl, this is the shit to watch. You need to check this out, you know? And that could be a double-edged sword for you, too. If I don't even trust people telling me it's good. The movie, but there were some things that people were excited about, and it came out, and people were like, ugh, chow. Do we really need to have that? And it's like, oh, okay, I'm probably not going to watch that right now because I'm not interested. So now, it, like I said, it's cultivating that positive, strong word of mouth and figuring out ways to do that when people can't go to the movies right now. Right. Like, how do you well, do that? I want to piggyback just real quick on what Chris said. You can't, you almost can't believe even when somebody says, yeah, yeah, LS, it was good. And, and, and I think that's something we could go into to what makes something good? Is it the words on the page? Is it, is it the emotional journey? Is it all of it? Is it the box office? Because Chris, one thing I love about Chris, it ain't a bunch of stuff that he liked. And I like that. No, right, no, it's no, sort of like look, me, look, look, where look, look, you know. I'll, let I'll me recategorize that. Are you trying to say? Are you trying to say he has taste? Title of the episode. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is, he just doesn't see. He's like me. I, I know, and, and and all of you, all of you guys, Danielle, Keenan, when we're artists, we we have you ever guys ever sit there, Hillier, and you're with somebody watching something and go, I hope this doesn't mean that he's going to be a ghost in 10 minutes. Or I hope this doesn't mean, and it happens. And they go, how did you know that? And it's because we're creators. Yeah. And that's what I think, Chris, I'm saying. When we can scope it out, Lisa, Hillier, Kina, Danielle, you know, it seems that to me, they didn't put enough twists. They didn't, I don't know. But Well, I, I, all right. So, I mean, look, this is something that like, I kind of came to, re I, I, I kind of came to realizing this. Uh, I don't know the last couple of years, but it's like, you know, how I began to watch films that were not mainstream films and how fascinating I found that, like that, those works is something that was, uh, and, it's, and it's kind of like an issue with me in a lot of things. It's like, you know, okay, so basically, I, I, I used to read this magazine called Sight and Sound that the British Film Institute put out. And I would get, it was a, you know, it'd come out every other month or something like that. And I would have the subscription for this for years. And, right, so, the, and there's movies that would come out that they would review and all this kind of stuff like this and, all, and stuff on video. And, and the thing is, is that those critics didn't, like they weren't beholden to like the studio system to talk, you know, to, 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 you know, to like to give a movie a good review or something like that. And they would talk about other movies that I'd never heard of. And I would go, Oh, I'm going to go see this. I'm going to go see this. I'm going to, you know, you know, the, the referencing stuff or stuff would come out in England uh, on home video, these European films and stuff like that, that, that would not come out over here. And it kind of like shifted how I, you know, like, like, began to appreciate what you could do as a storyteller and it got to the point where but in my head I, I was like well this is what everyone should be doing because everyone needs to fucking be like you know I means but then but people don't you know people don't look at stuff that's outside of their you know like uh it, i mean you know stuff that doesn't like that might not want to talk to them because of like the content you know like the race of the people in it the like where it takes place and to me it's kind of like there's one more thing, Chris. Sorry to interrupt you. They don't want to read the subtitles. And they don't want to read the subtitles. <laughs> Lazy motherfuckers grow don't up, want to read up. the subtitles. They don't want to read the subtitles. Gotta grow up. Gotta and, grow up. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, and it's a, it's a huge thing. But to me, it was, it, was, it was always like, okay, 
you know, watch the subtitles, read the story, see what you're you're missing. And and to me, I kept. And the thing is, is that for me, seeing all that work, I would see the influences in other filmmakers. I would see the influences in the filmmakers everyone was celebrating, and I was kind of like, "You're celebrating because you don't know." And Chris, it, it, just like you and I are kind of like the Statler and Wardo from the Muppets, the film critics that sit up and be like. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we both watch a lot of foreign films. Because just like you said, like when we go in on certain people, like QT and different people, and people are like, oh, they're the best thing ever. It's like, bitch, if you've been watching a whole bunch of other films in other places, you see that he's just ripping off of something. And he's not original. And it's like, if we watch more international film, I'm trying to get away from saying foreign films because foreign just sounds so negative and it tries right. to like marginalize people. I like to say international because it sounds fantastic and fabulous and we all want to be international. But you learn to to see other artours, other work. It, it just it just enriches your way of storytelling and seeing the world to make it a little bit different. And it just opens you up to better storytelling. And I just feel like, even though I know there's a lot of people who don't like watching foreign films, I just feel like you're shortchanging yourself. Or if you're not reading periodicals, like you said, like in the old days, I think I was re reading, ah, what was the name of it? It was like an old, it might've been Italian. Uh, my dad used to send me these Italian film magazines on film. That's when I was really heavily into Jalo films, the horror, Italian horror. And it elevated my game in terms of watching American horror. So I will trash a lot of films that people think are the seminal horror classic. And I'm like, eh, that's bullshit. Let me tell you where you should be watching. But that only comes of taking the time to educate yourself on film and to be open to, to different filmmakers. I think, and I'm just going to talk specifically about Black Folk. A lot of us do this, but I think a lot of times those stories that we tell get overlooked because of that. Because a lot of times they say black people aren't supposed to be right and stuff like that. You yeah. know, like that's that that are you sure a black person wrote that? Well, I don't think that's yeah. black enough. I don't think black yeah. people would do that. So I think that's something that we're gonna have to snap out of because I've seen just online within the last 18 months, too many amazing just through short films black filmmakers who are doing amazing things and in my heart of hearts i feel bad because i feel like an executive is going to look at that and say we can't sell that because that's not what black people do that's not really a black film where it's like no we're filmmakers telling the story that's amazing and a lot of these filmmakers do have a background in watching other films that are international American culture, though, because this culture is like most Americans, like 90% don't have a passport, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, just we don't know the, the capitals of other countries. We couldn't name like six countries in Europe. So like if you want people and this is the thing of like like Larry's point about some people like it, some people don't. I mean, that's what art is, because you're bringing your experience to a there film. You go. Right? Mm -hmm. The same story. If it's a story about somebody who was like, you know, molested by their uncle who then married their mother or whatever like you know what i mean if that speaks to your experience you're gonna have a different reaction action yep like a jordan ad that's supposed to appeal to everybody everybody's supposed to like it but that's a commercial right, right. so like with art like that it that comes with the territory of like somebody you could like whose taste you respect doesn't like this movie because the experiences they bring to it are different than experience to you and the final thing the thing that's great about that is like Books I've read, movies I've seen, shows I've watched when I was 20 and watched it again now, having two kids, I'm like, oh, shit. But the work didn't change. Mm -hmm. I changed. Exactly. But now it hits me in a whole different way. That's exactly. the shit we need to write. 
But isn't, isn't that then like our, that, that, that to me is like why it is our responsibility. Like Danielle, you said like, oh, I'm writing black protagonists now, right? It is our responsibility. We already know that what's Revolution. on the screen is what, right? And it's what people then are able to accept. You know what I mean? It's like people say the black president and the West Wing that allow steel bond. You know, we know that we're training people. And I think that the more that open people be like, I, I know we say this everywhere, that we're not a monolith, right? That we experience all different things. And even sometimes for me, as a voice actor, I will hear the producers will be like, could you, they want me to basically black it up. And it's like, I'm like, but I'm black. What you're envisioning that you want to hear is not my experience. I'm from Jefferson City, Missouri, where my mom was a vice president of a university. I don't know what you're asking me to do over there, but that makes me no less black. You know what I mean? And You're so like, I don't know, I don't know what those Tidewater black folk do up there, but I know over I, here. I don't know. I mean, I've Mississippi. Don't we know that New Orleans black can be different than yes. East Coast yes. black? Yes. You know, and I just think that the more that we as artists tell those stories, the more people will stop being like, this is how I see black. Exactly. Be like, that's black too. And to jump on that, Larry was about to say something. What were you going to say? Okay. Yeah, I was going to, I thought I heard, and, and I know I heard, I, I didn't think, I know I've heard you guys, you, Lisa and Chris speak to this. And I actually echoed this to, to other uh, writers who are just beginning. When you start a story, when you take on a job, an assignment, what have you, and I know I've heard you guys speak to this. There's your blackness. That's that's nobody's going to take that away. But if I'm assigned to write a story about something in the 1400s in Europe where there's and there's no black people in it, the first thing is the research. And then I get into it and then I see the vernacular, the way they speak, whether it's 1920s Brooklyn or it's I'm writing a story about a white guy in the Ku Klux Klan, even if I'm black, because my thing is you do the research and then from the research then you start writing and then wherever you can put your flavor, you put it. But my thing is, I think for, for us black folks, we obviously can write black. But the thing is, is in the beginning, our, a lot of our black exploitation movies were written by white folks. Of course. So if they can do it, we can write them. And because I don't want to I don't want any young writer listening to us to think that they have to write one way or another, because it's, it's always good. The research is where I get, I have the energy in me, because I'm me, I'm boom, I'm LS. When Hillier's writing, he's Hillier, Lisa, Chris, Danielle, everybody. But when they go, this is a movie about blah, 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 I have to do the research on the blah, 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 and the dialogue and the characters. And like Chris has said before, you create the characters. And what did this character grow up? Stuff that's not going to necessarily be in the script, but stuff that's going to be in your mind. So, boom, when you start writing notes and boom, when you start taking the protagonist on the journey, then you kind of know where you're going. And it doesn't matter what race you are. And I just want to throw that. No, I'm going to say oh, yeah. one thing. I'm going to say one thing. Sorry, Lisa. Before Chris jumps in here, he was next. Is... Um, I mean, I, I tell everybody before I sign with my big agency that I'm with, um, the last thing they said to me was, do you have any other questions? And I was like, I have a statement. <laughs> they were like, what does that mean? <laughs> I did. I'm telling you. And I said, um, <laughs> I'm at the big conversation with all of them. And I was like, I have a statement. And did you have the like, PowerPoint too? Did you have the PowerPoint too? I did. I said, right here. Uh, no, I was kidding. And I said, I said, look, 
I said, yes, I'm a black man. I'm a black gay man, right? I said, but I'm also a black man who lives in a white world. I said, we all do. And I said, do me a favor. Chris, I can hear you. Can you, can you mute? No, yeah, I just, yeah, as well. And I said, um, I said, so I live in a black world, right? And I said, do me a favor. Do not just send me on black stuff. I will walk, right? I said, you got to know there's a lot more of me than just what you see. You know, I live with the white man in the past 20 years and the past 30 for that, you know? And I said, I gave him this reference and I've used this on the, on the, on the podcast before. I said, do you ever watch, and I'm using black as an example, do you ever watch the black, British, Australian, South African, Nigerian actors or whatever, and their accent is a perfect American accent? You know why they could do that? Because they're over and dated by American stuff. Well, we live here. We are the same. It's easy for us to write you. Exactly. Exactly. I said, too, it's like it's a nuance of having 40 years or however old we are of being living in that world. That's what we see on television. We don't have to do research on white Americans because we have that experience. We and may we have to like you said, on, <laughs> we like may have to said. do research on a European, you know, or some other culture, but white Americans, if you grew up grew up black in this country, then you you have it. You know, and, it's and like job I, and you said school. you and you know the nuances, and you know the different subsets, exactly. you know the class distinctions, you know exactly how some of them speak, you know how they get kind of smarmy when they get loose around their own people, and my time, and they get real loose when they think you're a friend and they ignore you. Child, I've been taking notes. Like, I can write a whole American beauty, whatever you need, because we've been around that. And just like you said, uh, Hilliard, we can write anything. I am dying. One of my passion projects I am dying to do is Anne Rice's Cry to Heaven, which is about the Italian castrati. I, okay, I got Italian roots my dad's side, but I'm not a white Italian. But it's like, I know nothing about that century, but I do know the story. I know those characters inside and out, and I know that I could bring something to that that is so fascinating. And it's a world that's totally away from me. Come on, castrati? Opera singers, dudes that get their stuff cut off because they got to keep those high voices. And like, how would I, a black girl, Black Gidget on the beach in San Diego, California with my surfboard have any type of connection to some white dudes in Italy getting their balls cut off so they can sound like Michael Jackson for the rest of their lives. You know what I mean? Like, how? Yeah, no, that's so, not really possible. So, that's so, possible. so it's just well, two yeah, things. But you know, it's funny. Go, go ahead. Well, it's two things on it. The thing is, is that everybody, it's like, the t t so white people don't know a lot of black people. You know, they just don't. So if, if, if I mean, like, if, if you think about your experience, if, if, like, if you grew up around white people, you probably were good friends with a lot of them, like, when you were in elementary school. But by the time you got to junior high or high school, it, you know, like, that began to trickle off. And I used to always say to myself, or something I came to, I came to realize, I was like, okay, so when you reach your, your, your preteen years, stuff like that, that's when black parents have to talk to you about cops and shit like that. I think white parents ha have to talk with their kids like, stay away from the black people. Because cause, cause, cause you see that kind of like, you know, although high school and stuff like that, there's, you know, like white people, they tend to have less interaction with, with blacks. 
and and that and that's just the trajectory for most of their life and that's why they don't know anything about our you know like experience because kids are kids and blah 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 but the real thing that makes your life what your life is is when you start you know start going through puberty and and, and like in adulthood and that's you know like kind of a crime i think it's still kind of a, a to, to lisa's point about what you know about castrati i mean there's nobody who knows everything about everything and then you get excited about something and you want to write about it or explore it and get and do your deep dives the problem is is that Pete is that white culture because of the way it has like, like treated black people it makes them think that we don't have the ability to understand shit that is not ours but you know p- part of their default status is we can understand everything and I feel like, you know, if you're black or if you're white or if you're Asian, whatever it is, you could actually write about any subject as long as, like, just like I was saying, as long as you do the research. And, and, and part of that research is you might need to interview someone from that culture or some cultural expert or someone. Like, I'm sure there's someone who's an expert on the Castrati right now, like Lisa, that, was, that if you want to interview them just to get additional shit that would, wouldn't be in your research, that's going to help, like, the work. And that's part of what you got to do to make your shit just seem like, you know, to seem as like what's the, the damn verisimilitude has to be so high. I mean, Chris, is, isn't that what they say? When you know the research, you're empowered. That's yeah. what relaxes you to write because you yeah. feel like, you know, you yeah, right. and that's what and, and I hate to butt in. But that's what I was talking about when I talk about the blah, 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 because can I write? And I agree with you, Hillier, man. Don't put me in a box because I'm black and I'm a, I only write black stuff. I can write anything. But when I get that assignment, when I get hired for that assignment, what I'm saying is, like Chris said, there's the research because 1928 Brooklyn is different from 1978 Brooklyn. And the west side of Cleveland is different from the east side of Cleveland. And that's where, like Chris said, that's what I love about when I hear you guys, and especially when I hear Chris and when I hit the rest of the rant room, that's where the freaking good material lies. I've had people read my stuff and go, and I'm talking about the IP holder. When you give them the pitch deck, they go, how did you know they used 23 Skidoo back then? Because I did the freaking research. Because that's how you that got to tell the truth. But it's also <laughs> about history, right? Like, that's why we can write other stories, because like, I don't know what to, what it's like to experience America as a black woman, but I know the, the shit I have to deal with as a black man. So if I have to write a story about a black woman, I can put myself and I can make the mental leap to say you've had a lot of shit that you had to put up with. Like if you're white and privileged growing up here, you don't have that empathy because you've never even thought about what it's like to travel in the world in somebody else's shoes. So that's like our superpower is that Like, you could write a story about a Ghanaian immigrant, right, who comes to the country with, like, $2. You know what it's like to be an other. You know what it's like to not have shit revolve around making you happy and satisfied every day. But isn't it like you have to want to, right? You have to want to. That's the biggest thing for uh, writers that aren't Black, is that you have to want to know other cultures and other Black people, because they can exist in this world without us. I mean, we know plenty of white people that don't have any Black friends, they don't have to, you know, they might see a black person at the grocery store. So in their world, they're like, this is my world. I don't interact with black people where we don't have that. Option. What, is, 
what a sad world to it's not sad have world. black people in your it's life. So true. It's true. I guess you're on your first end to have the, the, the pleasure it, of my presence. Are you kidding me? I know. That's you're a sad an life. example. But oh, because they do that, but because they, because they can have that advantage, right? They don't have to want to. It really takes them to step outside and go, I want to create this character that's going to be black. I need to do my research. I need to look into it. And, you know, I have a good friend who's a showrunner. And one of the things that she said is she was like, when you hire a black writer, you get someone who can write white and black. So you're getting a twofer. You know what I mean? So we automatically have to write white and black and everything else. When you hire a white writer, they don't have to think about black people because they can write a whole series that doesn't include any black people. And they're good with that. I just wanted to piggyback of something you said, Kina, is, for example, um, Pamela and I, Chris, I haven't told you, this just happened on Friday. We were brought in to um, possibly write this new uh, limited series based on like a Faulkner winning book that this white woman wrote about a black woman back in like the 1930s up to 1945. And you hear her tell her story. She woke up and had a dream. She had to write this thing. It's like based on fact in the world, but it's a, it's a fictional character. You know what I mean? And you hear her tell the story and I'm like, nobody else could have written this story. She didn't have to be black to tell this. And she's a reporter, you know, she's like an investigative reporter. So her details are so thorough, you know what I mean? That it's just amazing. So, but she knew she couldn't write this script. She said, but the people who are going to write the script, I think have to be, has to be a black woman or a black team or whatever it is, blah, blah, blah. And so when we came and pitched what we would do, she was like, you guys are the ones, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I get it. I see why it would be from this point of view. And so when I talked about myself being the underdog and Pamela talked about her strengths as a woman and raising her kids, she understood why the two of us could write this thing. You know what I mean? And so uh, uh, I was just piggybacking off what you were saying, Kina, because it's not that white people can't write us. I really hate when black people say they, they shouldn't be writing us. They, I'm okay with them writing us. I just want them to get it right. Exactly. I want them to reach out to Color of Change. I want them to reach out to, yeah. you know, Lisa or whoever, you know, to get somebody to consult them on something, you know? Then go ahead. It's fine. Because there are stories that are going to be out there. Remember, remember we talked with Paul Gio about this when he wrote this, um, I forget what his show was called, Black 22s or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he was really hesitant about coming out with this script, but it was a story that nobody heard of. Nobody heard of. We would have never found out about it. It was compelling and it was perfect yeah. for the stuff that was going on. And it was just so timely. And it was just like, yeah. And like you said, he was really worried. Like, here I am, this white man, and I got the story. And I was like, dude, you're the one who found the story. You're the one who did the research. You're the one who has something that's that's calling you to that. All you got to do is surround yourself with people who are going to give you the tools you need to make sure that shit is banging. I'm going to come see it. Yep. All I ask is that I have the part where I point and say, there they go right there. That's all I ask. I don't ask for much in life, you people. But he was hesitant. But I was very, I was appreciative of the fact that he did stop to think about it. You know what I mean? Like, hmm, am I the right person? And it's like, yeah, dude, you're the one who found that story. And do it. The worst thing that can happen is if you go ahead and do a story like some people who've won Oscars have done and act like it was all good without consulting a bunch of people to make sure they got certain things right. And then it backfires on you. You're going to get pushed back. You're always going to get pushed back, no matter who freaking writes the story. And you could be black and writing something black, and you're still going to get pushed back on some stuff. Because you might have been, I'm writing the authentic New York blah, blah, blah. And you're going to have somebody from New York on the corner of 125th and Lennox talking about, hey, how that shit go down here? It's like, 
but you're still black, but it's not, you know, it's, you're always going to get that. The only thing you can do is do your best to do the research, get the best consultants and do your damnedest to write the best story that right. you can write. And I'm going to watch that movie regardless who makes it, you know, if it's and tell the stories you want to tell and tell the stories you want to tell. And like, you know, like you said, we don't want people to think, oh, I'm a white person. I can't write. Yeah, you can write it. Just get it right. Lisa, Lisa, I want to I want to ask you something and and Hilliard and you and Chris, I want you to chime in. And this is for us emerging guys staying with the story that you found like Paul did. So for us, we're emerging. We find IPs. We come up with spec scripts. And I asked Hilliard and Hilliard knows I gave him a couple of emails. He knows what I'm talking about. How does a writer stay with what he created. Okay, you found an IP, you and you know how it can go. You can get you get it to the get once it gets bumped up the ladder, yeah, we'll give them executive producer credit and we don't want it. We don't want it. you're not on the set. We don't want to see them again. What is what is the best way I'm asking a rant room to stay with something that you created? Because I so, even so, and I'll say this. Okay, okay so I don't so, know LS man. They're gonna they're gonna use one of their guys to write it. Thanks for bringing it to us. But anyway, go ahead, Chris. Well, just two things. And, you know, I mean, it's one of the things where I tend to not want to write material, you know, as spec material that is based on other IP, because you like run the risk of getting bumped off at fucking any time. But you could come in and say, hey, I'm the writer-producer on this, up front. How you sell yourself at first. You know, I'm this not just right. the writer's much good, but hey, I'm a writer-producer. I'm looking for co-producing partners. That is a different conversation than, hey, read my script because of the way that you're coming at it. And they're going to look at you and go, well, why are you the producer? Like, what have you done? I found the material. I wrote it on spec. You know that's like a six-figure paycheck if you were, you know, to, to you know, to, to fucking like to write this. If I had the, if I had the script done, you know, and you didn't, and if you, if you would have commissioned it, well, guess what? You're dropping six figures for me to, for, 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 to have this done. So I have, you know, like taken that sunk economic cost, and in return, I want a producer credit. And you could also sit around and say, look, I want the producer credit because my job as the producer and as the writer is to protect the integrity of the story. Exactly. Because now if you say that, they might take offense like, what do you mean? Blah, 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 blah. It's like, hold on. You guys know that you're going to be coming up with, you can't, you got to figure out the most diplomatic way to say it is, but you know that they're going to come up with ideas that thrill them, that might not be the best thing for the story, and then it's, and then it's you to go back to uh, Tom statement earlier about like how do you deal with those notes you know you don't have to like deal with the notes the same way if you're saying i'm a producer on this you know but at the same time yeah i mean but look there's so much about like how you position yourself to not get bumped off and it's like but at the same time come on the set shit like that that's all part of your deal. That's all part. That's all yeah, part they, of, of, of like, once once you sign your deal, it's in it's, your deal that you and you come to the to the to the set at least a day or two. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, I mean or, 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 or more than that. Like, or more, hey, depending you know, on who it is. Hey, yeah. you know, I, I get to be on set all the time. There's a driver coming to get me to take me to sets. All no, that could be in your like, like all that shit is up in the deal, you know, so people know. Now, now, granted, 
I've been on 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 projects, not mine, but I was working. I worked as finance company. There are some people who get banned from the set, you know, because they because yeah, their fucking problems, <laughs> their problems early on, and you know, like doing that negotiation process, and then they get fucking like sit in that situation where they're like, you know, there's that rock in the hard place move. It's like, hey, so do you want your movie to go or no? Uh, uh, well, like, look, so your movie's not gonna go. Or it's gonna go and you get X amount of money, but you can't come into the set because that's like your behavior that is that has tainted the well ahead of time. Which goes back to you know like how you gotta comport yourself at all times. It doesn't mean you gotta like be the guy just because you come in as a producer and blah blah blah. It doesn't mean that you you know like like are fighting every battle about not changing anything. Like like well like that's the thing about taking notes is you gotta figure out what the note is and address it on some level. You know, I mean, because again, it's like those people want to be heard, and, and and usually notes are about like something was confusing to them. So it's and like, you have to and you have to sit down and really think about what makes you invaluable to the project. Hillier talks about this all the time. What is your superpower? What is your connection to the story when you're from the very beginning when you're selling it, where they know that there's no way we can get this done without you. You have to leave that room. And not have them think, all right, we'll buy this, but we'll get some of our other people to do it. They have to look at you like, in any kind of capacity, we need this person on there. To give you an example, even it's an old project and I talk about it all the time, because it was like my first, you know, it was my first thing going in and actually pitching and being with something, which is my Griselda Blanco script. What made me invaluable when I was pitching hell of that thing was I had on speed dial the agent that arrested her. I took the time to do all that freaking research, getting the court transcripts, paying money out of my pocket to get like, record transcripts, have my passport ready to go down to Columbia when she was still alive to go talk to her in person, had contacts with her son, the remaining son who was alive, who was just, he, I think he just got out of jail, who she named Michael Corleone, <laughs> out of the, the Godfather stuff. So I put myself in a position where it's like, you're not going to get all this shit. Not only that, but the guy who wrote one of the first early books about her, his daughter, he had died. His daughter had tapes of him talking to agents and different people when he was trying to write a book. She had the actual tapes. And she was down there selling expensive yachts down there in Malibu somewhere. So I had contact with her, you know, getting the stuff. So when I was pitching it, I made sure I pitched the hell of myself as an invaluable person, you know, to say, like, if you, you can do all this other stuff, but you're bringing me in because not only did I find the work and brought you the IP, but I'm bringing you the salesmanship. I'm bringing you the people that you probably would take a while to get in contact with because I've already done that groundwork. But you here's know, the, the key. And I, you that, have to do it without exactly. saying that. You have to do it without yes. saying that. Yes. And, then, and, and how you do that is you're nuanced and you sell the hell out of yourself first. Like I said, find that thing that makes them invaluable. Because the thing that made me invaluable was the fact that even though they had heard about the documentary Cocaine Cowboys and all the other guys, and I already knew that there were projects they were trying to make TV series, movies out of the men, nobody was checking for the female who was the baddest bitch who started all this right. stuff. The original Scarface, the original bitch who started all the motorcycles shooting up people. When you don't pay her, guess what? You ain't going to have no business. Like she was the one who started out with her own kids, trained them to do that. I could not for the life of me figure out why no one saw that as the most compelling story out of everything, out of all the gangster stuff they were trying to come out with, with all the Colombian mob stuff they were coming up with. So it was like, I had to pitch that and pitch the hell out of it so that they felt like, oh no, this, she has to write that. Cause number one, I'm not Colombian, but I'm a woman. And I know what it's like to be a woman and want to protect some stuff and want to make it in a man's world. And so when I did pitch that, pitch the hell out of it, 
But in my pocket, you know, you play in spades and you got that big joker and that little joker had home doing a speed dial. So when we started going to the other things, I was willing to like kind of tease out, like I have some connections that might save you guys a lot of trouble in order to keep myself attached to that. Now, in real life, when I have those real personal talks, I'm like, okay, they're probably going to boot me off and have somebody else rewrite this shit anyway. I'm prepared to do that. But I tell you what, I'm going to get a story credit. I'm going to get a producer credit. Yeah, and you that's, have- kinda, Go ahead, that's go exactly ahead. what I'm talking about. And I, I've talked to Hilliard about this before, and I've listened to the rant room. And nowadays, you have to be, if you guys agree. And I want to hear from Danielle and Kenya and, and Amadou. You have to be a producer writer nowadays. That's kind of what I started off saying. Which is why I love this what Kenya's doing. Yeah, exactly. exactly. If you're going to get this shit made, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be because of you. Because of you. I went out, I've flown people across the country. I've went and found the surviving member of, of an IP. And you got to get all this groundwork. And they're going to re- they're gonna have to respect your ass based on that alone. You know, yeah, you can go get, like Lisa said, you can go get your guys, quote unquote, to, you know, they're going to put the first draft. But I'm going to get a story credit. You know, you have to, you're bringing value to the project when you're a producer, writer, I think, exactly. for, for and, 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 and to have them jump into before that, that was the transitional point of the writing because this was happening like back in the early 2000s. So this is when a lot of writers, black writers, and especially those of us who were members of the organization of black screenwriters, many of who've gone on to become writers on hit TV shows. The thing that we started talking about at our meetings was that we have to start looking at ourselves as not just as writers, but as producers. Because as a writer, you are producing the content. So that was a heavy transition for a lot of writers to think about because a lot of times it's just, I just need to get an agent or a manager. It's like, now you're going to have to rethink. Not okay. only are you going to be the producer, but you you know, you know, might even be the executive producer. You might Tell actually them, be... Tell them. You might have to do all those things and you have okay. to be willing to do that. And if you can't, then maybe it's not the, the thing you want to be doing. Kina, go ahead and, and it's jump also, in there. Well, it's also more acceptable now too, right? So I, before I even, my first project I ever did was a three-person, one-woman show with two other girlfriends of mine, Kathy Taylor and Chanel Blake. I know you know them, Hilliard, right? So that was the very first thing we did. And we wrote, produced, directed, all of that material, right? Toured it, you know, and then I started doing films. But, you know, over 10, 12 years ago, agents didn't want to hear that you also were a producer and an actor and a writer. They were like, um, what do you do? Do you act or do you write? Right? Like that was where it was. And I always was living in this like, but I'm a storyteller. You know what I mean? And so for me, it was just always like, okay, my acting agents didn't know I would have films that were on the festival circuit because they didn't want to know I was out of town and couldn't attend an audition because I was with my film. But for me, I always knew I wanted to be I had stories that I needed to get out. You know what I mean? And what I always tell people is like, if there's a story that's burning in your head and you know you have to tell it, you got to tell it. You have to tell it. So for me, it was always like, I'm getting this story out and no one can produce it better than me as far as like in its, in its you know, incubation stage. No one's going to be able to tell it the way from my perspective that I want to tell it. And so it was like, I just always was under the, the impression that like, I don't want to wait. I'll just do it. I'll just produce it myself. I'll find the money and I'll shoot it and I'll do it. And, you know, I've always just kind of lived by deadlines in that way as well. You know, even with my one woman show, I gave myself like, here's a deadline. I'm going to do it. I booked my theater and I was like, this is when it's going to happen. You know, with my, my HBO film was the same thing. I was like, well, I know I want to tell this story. So here's my shoot date. 
everything just has to, to line up, you know, and as Hilliard mentioned earlier, to me, that just opens the door for people to be able to talk to you, have a conversation with you that is deeper than just like you wrote this story. It's like, oh, wait, you produced that too. And you, and you got all those people together and you brought those people in and you did. Yes. So as you said, then my value is I didn't just write this and hand it off, or I didn't just even direct this and hand this off. Like I brought this whole piece together. I am the puzzle maker right here. Yes. You know what I mean? So if I'm bringing these puzzle pieces together, now come be a part of this as well, as opposed to exactly. pushing me out. You've already exactly. proven the concept. You've already exactly. proven. Yeah. Yep. Go ahead, Danielle. What, what about you? I, sorry, I was on mute. Um, I agree. What I tend to do at this stage is specificity and that I'm telling a story that they always say, tell a story that no one else can tell. And that is always my focus, that I am a black woman who was born in Italy and grew up in San Diego and spent a lot of my time, my teens in D.C. because my stepdad was a Marine colonel, worked in the Pentagon, like very specific stories. And I tell from that perspective, because who else can tell that story well, of course, there's probably somebody else, but this story that I'm telling, this is me. This is my story. And so that is always my case because I definitely come at things from a producer standpoint. I was speaking to somebody the other day about my Black Russians uh, script, and he was like, well, I don't think I can think of any Black actresses out there who know how to speak Russian. I was like, I do. I had already done my research. I know two actors just off the top of my head that I could say, yes, I know, because I've already done my research that way. So it's about making yourself invaluable. And that's, that's just, that's what we can do as writers because people always say just a writer. And, you know, when I was an earlier writer, I used to kind of offend. I'm like, what do you mean just a writer? Like the writer is the most important thing. That's where everything starts, what you talking about. But it is like, if you're just a writer, you're going to hand off those pages and they don't need you anymore because they can go off and do the rest of the work. So what else are you bringing to the table? Yeah, and this is exactly what I'm always teaching, preaching, talking to writers about, you know? And I say the same thing, whether it, like if Kina was just an actor, an actress or whatever, you know, I would be like, girl. And I know Kina know everybody too. I'm like, girl, you know some people. You know how to put the team together, you know? And you got Catherine in your life. Catherine, is, Catherine and I started producing together. You know what I mean? So she could produce a little butt off. So, you know what I mean? So there's, there's a, um, uh, you have to make yourself be somebody who's not, who's not waiting for Hollywood. Hollywood loves that. That's why they went after Issa, you know what I mean? And Lena and all these people because they went out and got it. And Hollywood was like, wait a minute, they got our audience. There's money over there. Remember, we missed, we missed Tyler. Let's make sure we catch everybody right. else. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Bringing value <laughs> things, everything. I, I've even seen this where, and, and, and keep in mind, this is for any of the uh, writers and, and producers listening to the show that are from somewhere else. You're from Idaho. You're from Miami. You're from Brooklyn. Here's the thing. A lot of people, especially from New York City, they come in town and they get a meeting. They can get meetings. And there's a, a group of independent people and they like the project. It's almost like the Eminem thing. I remember when Interscope and Dr. Dre saw Eminem, but there was proof. There was 12 other guys there, but we only need this guy. And that's the same thing that can happen to a project unless you have value. 
they'll start picking it apart and going, we don't need that guy. We, but this guy's my brother. He's the producer. Well, we don't need that guy. We don't. Okay, who owns the copyright? And who brought it in? Because we can't get rid of them. And that's all. And you can do whatever you want with the other guys. So when you, I've seen people where they come in, it's a small team of three, and they've done this, 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 and this. And I've seen an executive ease over and go, hey, we got a couple of other projects because they like the work that you've done. Maybe we can bring you in and help put this other thing together. Because people always ask, how can I get in the door? How can I get an agent or a manager? Well, if you do the damn work, somebody's going to come looking for you to do that work on their project. If it's good. Drop the mic. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think another thing, too, that's important to keep in mind, especially, you know, as an emerging writer coming in is, I think, like, Danielle and I have talked about this a little bit. I mean, we have the benefit of not being 22 just out of USC film school. Like, we've had lives, careers... So we're not coming in from a place of desperation. So like, you know, Chris and Lisa were talking about, if you go in and you ask for part of that deal or demand as part of that deal, well, I'm going to be a producer, I'm going to be here. You're demanding that because you know, if it's not right, you can walk away. Cause I'm not, I'm not, it's not make get this made or I'm living in a cardboard box. Right. So I think a lot of times we have to make sure that we embrace like the power that we have and be willing to say no. Like sometimes that's, I always look at it like this goes from like music photography, like somebody asked you to do some work for little money. Like they got two Rolodexes. They got the people they can call when they don't have a budget and they got people who they only call when they have a budget. And you got to make sure you're in that second Rolodex. And but you got to be willing to walk away from stuff, you know, and I have done that. So that's a T-shirt I'm going to do. I got I I got I got one more thing to say on this. Yeah, We got like 10 minutes left. Yes. Um. So I'm sure like in the last three or four years you've seen on movies, there'll be for the producers, there'll be that little, those, the, the PGA after, you know, after their movies, there's, if, if so, if you go to the PGA website, I believe, or you can talk to someone who's in it, there's, there's kind of like a list of duties that you have to be involved in to get that, like, you know, to, to, to get that, uh, whatever that guild thing put on put on your name on the credits you should become familiar with what those duties are so you know what's expected of you so that when you're pitching about hey this is what so i wrote the script and this is what i can bring so you know and you making these these asks about what you want like like you know what's entailed like with that ask you know so <laughs> that's something else well, that's some game. That's some game. Can I can I just ask a question to Please. everybody? I know that Danielle answered it earlier when she talked about the first script she read because I think a lot of times when you're an emerging writer and when you're first starting to write scripts, that first script you read that pops that makes you think, "Yes, I can do that." Can I just ask the other writers what that script what was your first script that you read, like the first professional screenplay that you read, and what was it about it that made you think, "Yeah, I, this this is for me. This is for me." Well, I'll, I'll say The Wizard of Oz. Oh, really good one. I was told that one of the best screenplays ever written was The Wizard of Oz. True. The next thing I did was not read anything because I said, I know how to tell stories. I used to rap. I know how to tell stories. So whoa, I'm whoa, gonna... whoa. You got bars like that? You I got he bars. Got, he got, he got, <laughs> notice how he tried to slide that through. I like, know, like, yeah. on notice. like, I used to rap. The you know? next script that I, that I read that I thought was amazing was Carlito's Way. Ooh, nice. The character was so specific. 
And I knew it would get across Chris's desk if Chris read it and he would like it. If Chris liked it, I know it's good. (laughs) Carlito's way was so specific. And what I loved about it and what my uncles told me, in the 70s, all the white folks, and Carlito said this in the movie, or maybe it was in the documentary, they talk like black folks because it was so cool. Mm. That was out of 100%, 90% of all ethnicities talk like you heard in Superfly. Mm. Now, we may have been babies back then, but that is a fact. And I also have a guy that told me if you lived in Brooklyn or Queens, everybody talks the same. It's not a white, you know, like when Richard Pryor does the jokes, well, white guys, I'm going to get me to talk like that. Stop (laughs) it. That's what I think helped Kevin Hart because he don't come with this white people talk perfect. They know. But I just think that Carlito's Way and The Wizard of Oz for me, and there's a ton of other ones, but those were the two scripts from two different worlds that that made me say, wow, this is a thing. What about you, Kina? Gosh, I was sitting here thinking, racking my brain, um, because, you know, obviously, like, as an actor, being more of an actor first, I was always just reading scripts as an actor, which just kind of subconsciously informed me as mm-hmm. a writer. Um, and so this is not going to be going back to Carlito's way, but this script stood <laughs> in my mind. And so, you know, but I remember when I was auditioning for This Is Us and I read that pilot, mm. I just thought that that was such a great pilot. And when my agent sent it to me, you know, again, you know, what that's been on the air now, you know, this was, I don't know, six, seven years ago, yeah. whatever. But when I read that pilot, I just remember being like, that's how I want to tell stories like you know and however you however people want to see the show now but like reading that pilot I just remember really loving the way that and um uh oh god what is her name Carrie Washington was in the movie dead oh gosh I have to think of it she's another one that I really like I love stories that intersect Mm -hmm. and kind of come together so um that's that's the one that comes to my 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 mind now awesome Danielle Well, mine was Juno by Diablo Cody. Oh. Uh, and then after that, I went on a like a binge. I read a ton, so I can't remember what the second one was. But there was a few that did stick out. This Is Us pilot really stuck out to me. That one was it just kind of blew my mind out of the water. Because um, normally you can see things coming, but I did not see that one coming. And anything that does that for me, it was, was the Get Out was a, was a good script when I read. I was just like... Pfft. You know, just anything that that takes you, that that drags you in, you know, where you're not, you know, checking your phone, you're not, you know, right. thinking about what you want to write, but, you know, something that really pulls you in. So those three scripts specifically. Awesome. Amadou? Yeah, it's funny. Like, I think for me, it was um, a stage play. It was reading August Wilson's works in terms okay. of just the inspiration of like, yeah. wow, you could create this whole kind of world. Like, that was just so fascinating to me. But I think for TV, like when I was at the point where I want to write a pilot, it was so many, I had so many questions about just the craft of it, the pacing. How do you do this? How do you do that? And I read um, Shonda's uh, pilot for Scandal, mm. man. And whether you like the show or not, that's like a masterclass of like awesome. just page by page, every single word. I was like, oh my God, this is how they introduce this character. This is how they get some backstory in, but it doesn't feel expository. And, it, and I'm like, it's page seven and I've got all this information. So that for me was huge because that that showed me that there was there was like a process 
to how TV scripts work. And what was, the, what, was the, what was the August Wilson uh, play? Man, I think the... It's funny because I read like four of them in a really short period of time. I mean, I, I loved radio golf, piano lesson. Um, it, it was kind of just the totality of them, just of... It was the authenticity of it, I, I, I think, that really stood out to me, that you can convey that you can convey a world on a page. Like the only, I had seen fences, like when James Earl Jones did it, but that was like, oh, it's the actors doing it on the stage and it's all the stuff that we never read the play. I was like, oh, <laughs> now I know who gets all the credit behind this, you know. Exactly, exactly, hilarious. What about you, you Hilliard? Um, first, I'm like, I'm kind of like Kina, cause you know, I started acting when I was 12, so I don't, I don't remember. Well, in, but ter- I, in terms, like, a, uh, as a as a writer, like when you decided as a, as a, as a writer, it probably was. Um, Alien is probably one of them in particular, because I was starting to decide did I want to write action when I first started, but I remember reading Alien, and um, then one of the next movies was um, um, Big Fish. And then my first script I wrote, as you remember, was my skinhead script, the Rebel Yell script. So I wanted to find other scripts where somebody was telling a story in the present and we would go back and forth in time. I went back and found All About Eve and Double Indemnity. And I was in. Ooh, got the classics. Got the classics. You got to go back to the classics. All About Eve. Eve. That that still holds up. What about you, Chris? Um, I mean, I've been writing, you know, like... I mean, kind of was exposed to screenplays like very young. Like when I was in high school. Um, I think that when I, but you know what? But I remember when I was out here, and I read a script for a movie called uh, old film noir called um, "Murder My Sweet," which was like really a fascinating way about to look at how a movie that I knew so much, I loved so much, like how it was constructed on the page. Um, something about like in terms of like how like how writing kind of works. In terms of like, I think trying to create mood and stuff like that. The script for Seven was insane, and I I I remember reading that, and I was like, this guy just did so much on the page that it was it was it was just like you because you felt the creepiness and the and the the and the and the suffocating nature of the movie. You felt that on the page, and I thought that was fucking fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, Amer- American Beauty was another one that changed my life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. American Beauty for me, and also uh, I think the one before that though was um, a couple years before that was Jerry Maguire. That was when my uh, friend was working at Sony Pictures before I knew there was such a job as mm-hmm. a person who reads scripts and gives notes on the scripts. And when I was given <laughs> all the, I was giving her all these free notes and all these movies, and she would just give me this stack of scripts. And the very first professional screenplay I had ever read before Tom Cruise even had it was Jerry Maguire. And when I finished reading that script, I said, somebody's going to win a fucking Oscar for this. Like, I can see best actor, best, you know, supporting actor. And then that heifer didn't tell me that there was a job. I could be, I could have been doing that, picking out people's lives for them. But I just remember yeah. there was something about that, the way that script moved, it made me cry. And the same thing with American Beauty. Like, when I got done with that, I cried after I read that script. I thought, if, if there's any way to write something like that, I got the interview out like a few weeks ago. Oh my! Oh, God. did you? Yeah, God. it was just like Crazy. that script. Like he, for someone to be to be about a, a guy whose life is so far away from my own, 
but to have characters like my favorite thing and i think that's what broke me and made me cry and i'm so glad they had it in the movie was the part in the script where they talked about the little um the little plastic bag being tossed around in the wind yes and I bawled. I remember my boyfriend sat there and looked at me like, what are you doing? You're just reading a script. What is happening? And I'm like, this is like the epitome of life. Someone has <laughs> gone into my brain and has somehow been able to describe surreal moments that I have felt, existential moments as a human being. And I just thought if I could get to that level one day or even close to it, I, I would be doing okay. So, But I think it's important that people, when they talk about getting into writing and being an emerging writer, um, understanding the impact of those first scripts that you start to read that really have a huge influence on how your writing is and makes you start to think about either you you can do better <laughs> or maybe you can aspire to be just as good because it really comes down to your reading. And I think, Daniel, like you said, reading hundreds of scripts and reading a script and seeing how you feel as you're going through it, you know, mm-hmm. it, it'll help you with your own writing. Like, am I caught within the first couple of pages? Do I feel empathy or sympathy for these characters? Do I want to keep turning the page? You know, do I feel my humanity being addressed? There's just certain things that you just learn as a writer that reading really, really good scripts, it just really helps you become a better writer. You know? Well, it does. I think, I, uh-huh, I finish your thought. Well, I was just going to say, I think also too, because I didn't really come in like I'm going to be a writer. I came in as an actor who knew I wanted to direct right and knew that I had stories to tell and so again there was no one else to tell them so it was like well I want to do this I want to act this role so I'm going to write this story and so I think even like for actors who are like getting into screenwriting for me though I was taking the acting world that I was bringing and everything I do about developing character when I'm preparing for a role or an audition I was using that to develop all of my characters and you said something earlier um Larry about like you know even those things don't make it to the to the script you know for me it was always like I still even though when I'm preparing for a role there's a lot of things that I know about this character that you're never going to hear me say or say even when I'm recurring on shows that you'll never know but I know and so I started writing from that point too that like this may not be on the screen but it informs the way in which I write the story you know and I think a lot of times what I've seen in scripts especially you know like you said like you're saying like starting off writers people want to tell you every single thing and they want to write it all. And we're like, it's a visual medium, right? You can show us, (laughs) right? You don't have to tell us every little thing and we can still understand that. And I think like, that's like the beauty of a good script is like when you're reading it, you're not even like, this is going to go to this screen, but you read that about the plastic bag and you were already crying and going, you know, Oh my God, I'm transported, you know, and then to see what they did with the movie and you know what I mean? I think that's just a, it, it, it's such a skill. Indeed. Well, thank you. Right. Um, I was just saying this last little piece, piggybacking off of what Lisa was talking about, is I was saying earlier about the more research, with what, what Larry was talking about, the more research you do, the more empowered you feel, because now you know. You feel like you're the master of that world, Right. So it's the same thing with reading a bunch of scripts to me, which is why you don't have to go to school for it. You read so many of them, you feel like you've mastered the structure and you start to see the patterns. Sometimes the patterns change, you know, Quentin Tarantino, other people change the patterns. But even within that, it's still the same. You know, you learn to take a step back and go, yeah, it's over here. But he did kind of bring it all together. So the character still did this. You know, he still does it. He just does it a little pivoty. (laughs) You know what I mean? Anyway, um, 
So oh, that's I, all I'm saying. Without even right? thinking that it's internalized. And so you yeah. don't, after, so after a certain amount of time, you're writing in structure that you're supposed to be writing and without maybe going to school and the teacher saying, okay, this is an act break. This is where this happens. This is where this happens. You've already internalized that with the more you read and the more you watch with right. that. And, and I was talking with Paul Gill about this the other day, Chris, on Clubhouse. And uh, we, were, we were in a room and we were moderating, you know, for a bunch of writers. <clears throat> and we were talking about this exact thing about how um, you get to a certain point where now, because I know structures, like when people ask me what's my strongest thing, to me, it probably, structure is one of them. You know, I can hear your story and go, oh, something's, you need to move that over there and that over there and that over there. Now it's all going to come. I can just hear it. Right. Because yeah, la lastly, I want to say. Let me finish my last thing, Larry. Last, oh, okay, last I'm thing. Oh, I'm almost there. I'm, yeah. I apologize. Yeah. And, and so, shit, I forgot my thought. No, Clubhouse oh, wow. and okay. Structure. No, Clubhouse yes. and Structure. Clubhouse and Paul that you can hear the structure. Yeah, so we were talking about um, structure on, on Clubhouse, and I was telling them about how, um, for me, um, oh, so now I don't need to necessarily follow Save the Cat or the sequence approach or whatever it is that you do. Now I go by a feeling. Now when I'm writing, I'm looking at the screen imagining it up here on the screen and I'm going, what's going to catch me? Ooh, I need, it would be really cool if it was dark. So I start on darkness, right? I mean, a sound, the sound of a car, whatever the thing is, I bring you right in. You know what I mean? And so now I'm, I'm taking you on that ride. And those are the things that, that, that when I'm writing my outline or my beat sheet, I'm taking you, I'm, same thing, I'm still visualizing it there. And I'm taking you on this ride. I'm like, what transitions me out of that act break? Oh, we go from the sound of feet to the sound of a horn honking that now we're in a, in a street. We went from a field to a street. You know what I mean? So I'm constantly trying to move visually, you know, the ride. It doesn't need to be that, oh, by page six, this thing needs to happen. I know it because I can feel it that this thing needs to happen. And sometimes there are a scene that goes more than three or four pages. Because the conversation was interesting. And it went from one person thinking they won to the next person winning. You know what I mean? So you got to find that balance of those things. And the more you do, the better you are. Anyway, finish your thought, Larry, then we'll wrap it up. Yeah. Lastly, I wanted to say, when someone had asked me, why did I go see one of the superhero movies? It's the same thing. To me, what I've always thought is for a story to be good, there has to be two journeys for that hero, the visible goal and his internal goal. He wants to save the girl from the burning building, but he's scared of heights. And that emotional journey that you're taking on for him to go up to the top and save the girl while overcoming his scare of heights, uh, afraid of heights, that's your movie. What happens so many times is people have movies and you go, you know what? I've been sitting here 20 minutes and I have no idea what I'm rooting for. I have no idea what this guy's trying to Because he's saving the girl and he's not afraid of heights. <laughs> That's part of the, he doesn't have the flaw. The flaw is Larry, Larry, have you been sitting over my shoulder watching me on Netflix when I'm watching stuff for 15 minutes and then going on to the next thing? You gotta go Every first, day. Say, Netflix, okay. and, Netflix and chill. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> yeah, interesting. You guys That's good. All right, thanks, Chris. Appreciate it, buddy. I think your camera's still on.
Do you always go to your outline? Do you always reference your outline when you're writing, Hilliard? Well, I'm a very detailed outline person. So my outline is really, really, really detailed. Close to um, your script, isn't it? I mean, every scene is like, you know, faded. I write it almost like a script. There's just no dialogue. It's mm -hmm. exactly. It's all prose. You know, scene, you know, uh, fade in, you know, Kena's house day. I'm just spitballing. You know, all right. and we go right into Kena and her husband getting an argument about this thing. You know, she's going to tell him in the end that this thing happened. You know, what's going to happen is the husband's going to bubble. So it's all because this thing happened, this thing happened. Because that thing happened, it caused that thing to happen. You know what I mean? And it keeps you going like this. And I was talking also on Clubhouse the other night about um, um, about um, writing backwards, which is what one thing Lisa talks a lot about. I never get stuck because of I learned how to go backwards. So say you're in Act 2 and you're stuck somewhere and you're like, I can't quite figure out, even you might have it all beat it out and outlined, but once you get to the script, things just shift, you know? And so right. I'll go, something's wrong, something's wrong. And I'll go, okay, what happens at the end? Oh, so the wife saves the son on the mountain cliff, spitballing, right? Right. How did she get there? Okay, so she had to kill the dinosaur to do this thing, to get to that thing, to get to that thing. Now let me work backwards. She saved the kid, killed the dinosaur, did this thing, and I start playing the beats backwards and go, oh, I never set up that she was driving the car. That exactly. Got her the car. You exactly. know what I mean? Right. It's yeah. little yeah. things right. that you're yeah. usually missing, yeah. which is yeah. why people get bumped. Yeah. Right, because you have to know the end. Right. Even if it changes. Even if it changes. Even if it changes. Even if it changes. You have to know, when, you have to know the end exactly. yeah. when yeah. you start. Right. Yes, 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 yes. And so for me, that's the thing that's always saved me. So yes, my I do write the script as I do when I have my outline, but I also have learned for me, I almost never start at the beginning. I'll write my favorite action moment, for example. Remember, a script doesn't have to be written linear. linear I can never say that word. Say it for me, Lisa. Linearly. That motherfucker. <laughs> it doesn't have to be written that way because it's a puzzle. You could write this scene in the middle of Act Two, the scene, the the, the final, you know, uh, culmination between your your antagonist and your hero. You could write wherever you want, and then start puzzling that shit together. You know, some people like to start at the beginning because it gives them momentum. I like to start at the beginning when it needs to be because I want to set the tone. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. So I'm going to start on you know a dark, eerie road or whatever it is to make it the tone feel as right. such. You know what I mean? Right. So, that's why, that's why I kind of look forward to seeing Judas and the Messiah because of the way that it's kind of, from what I, my understanding of the way it's written, it's almost like a almost like a thriller and kind of a different way of doing a, a quote-unquote biopic. And like you said, different ways of starting the story to keep it going. So I'm excited about, about checking that out. And I out. think that's really interesting because, you know, Hillary, you did see my, my One Woman show and mm -hmm. um, people asked a lot about the writing and that's what I did, right? I wrote all the stories. And then in rehearsals, we would puzzle piece it. Try it this way. See how that works. Oh, oh, that doesn't work. Okay, let's try putting this story with this story and this story and then transition. That feels right, but that doesn't feel right. And, you know, that was really interesting to work that way. But because it was about, you know, you saw the show, it was about all these different right. stages of my life and stuff. It just didn't feel like I could start at the beginning and right to the end. I had, like you said, my favorite action scene, my favorite this scene, my favorite this and then we, like you said, we put it together like a puzzle until we found the flow that was like, that still gets me to my end, you know? And also, nice. you, you as the actress, 
as the actor, have to be able to keep yourself going throughout. So it's kind of like, you know, you could sing too. So you don't want to get to the thing where you sing that song in the beginning. That's the big note. And you can't, right. you, you don't have enough voice to do that monologue in act two. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? So you want to make sure you save that for the thing. So it's, it's, you have to always be thinking. Like always. That. You know yeah. what I mean? For sure. Absolutely. Anyway, well, thank you guys. I appreciate having all of you on the show. Let's say Chris <laughs> Derrick just had the run. Um, like I said, he has to get back to a script. But uh, mm -hmm. thank you, Chris, for hanging with us. And again, thank you, all of you. Amadou, Danielle, Kina, Larry. We appreciate every one of you. Lisa, Lisa, Lisa. Cole, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. um, this yeah. is going to drop tomorrow. So oh. everybody, please make sure I have all your Twitter information and whatnot so I can blast all that. Um, and uh, thank you again. You have, our, you have all of our social medias and stuff, right? So bless uh, everything. Be sure to send it to me when we're done, just in case. I say I don't want to do my shameless plug unless you have. Oh, I'm about to tell you to go ahead and give you your plug. Yeah, we're going to give you a shameless plug. Where you at? Can people follow you? You know, where's your where's your website? Whatever you want them to do, give it to them. I'm Kena Star everywhere. K e e n a Star everywhere. My one minute film stop that's that dropped last week that's been doing really well is on my social media. Also, it's on Twitter and YouTube. Stopped. And um, and then my website's KenaFerguson.com and everything else you would need, you can find there. Indeed. Amadou, where you at? Uh, Twitter, Amadou World. It's the best place to catch me. Awesome. Danielle? Well, fascinating. <laughs> I'm on all the socials at Danielle Nikki, and you can read my samples at DanielleNikki.com. Oh, you can have some people. Oh, she got samples stuff. and stuff. Damn. That's somebody confident. Are you, okay. <laughs> okay. Are you N I C K or N I K K? N I C K I. Mm hmm. Yeah. But honestly, I, I run a small business and I just decided one day I was going to run my writing world like I run my business. So Smart. that's just, you know, I got my website and I'm the same on the socials all the way around. If you want me to find me, you can find me and you can read me. So. Yeah. I love That's that. And I just I just wanted to add this one thing. And Lisa knows this, like I have an office over on the lot, you know, in West Hollywood, and people come in, they're like, you know, you, you have a beautiful office, but when they walk in, my door is wide open. And I'm like, I'm open for business. You know what I mean? And I've gotten like I've been there almost six six years now. Is it and I've gotten six years? Yeah, and I've gotten three jobs just from having the door open. You know, because wow. people come in and they're curious. You know, mm -hmm. what do you do? Your office is so cute and blah, blah, blah. And we get into a conversation. Next thing you know, I got a term sheet and I'm writing something. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, so I love that. You should be open for business. And that's the way to look at it. What about you, Larry? Where are you at? Yes, I want everyone to listen to the show when uh, Hillier puts the show up. Uh, I think this was a great show we had today. You can find me, Larry Solidarity, on Twitter, Larry Solidarity on Instagram. Uh, and that's what's up. Indeed. Awesome. <laughs> Lisa, Lisa, Colt, Jam, where hey, you at? What fresh hell is this? One, one day we'll get you back on Twitter. I, you know what? I'm trying. I'm just, you know, I got to deal with the family stuff first. And then once I get it situated within the next month, um, I think I'll be back and, and to play. But it's what fresh hell is this on Twitter and what fresh hell is this, Lisa, on IG? I love your handle. <laughs> hey, hey it's, it's Dorothy <laughs> Parker. It's Dorothy Parker. <laughs> <laughs> and I am your host, Hilliard Guest. You guys can find me on Twitter at Hilliard Guest. You guys can follow the show, Screenwriters RR, on Twitter. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm also on Instagram and Clubhouse now, god damn it, at Hilliard Guest. 
They got you. They got they you. Got Kenan and they Bottom got me too, Hilliard. You know, we didn't been in many a rooms exactly. together, moderating. They got me too. It is fun though. It's fun. I think you you think you'd really enjoy it, Lisa. It's fun. Um, I'd, be a, I'd be a hot mess on there. <laughs> Jumping from room to room, like, I'll be right back. I'm going to this other room right now. It's just like this, isn't it, Kina? It's just like this. That's it. It's just like this, but it can be a time trap. You will look up and be like, uh-uh, I got, I got to do work. I cannot yes. be on Clubhouse with y'all for four hours. <laughs> I got to be, I got to have it playing while I'm doing this. That's why I miss things. I'm like, what did they say? Right. <laughs> uh, right. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, if, any questions, screenwritersrantroom at gmail.com. Please go on iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, whatever you guys listen to, Spotify, we're out there everywhere. Go on our screenwritersrr.com. We have a Patreon, please. You know, if you guys want to donate a little something to that, we'd appreciate that. Um, all kind of stuff like that. Um, Chris is at unauthorized CBD on Twitter and Instagram for sure. Um, stuff like that. Anyway, everybody joining me. This is going to be a nice two-hour episode, but, you know, I don't give a fuck. We're having a good time. There's <laughs> a lot of game on there to people, yeah. you know, people to get some games. So I'm like, hey, we'll, we'll just make it be a nice long episode. So everybody joining me for Wakanda Forever. You guys know how we do it on the Rant Room. On this show, we keep it real. We keep it opinionated. We keep it what, everybody? What? what? Oh, oh, I'm going to say what I feel. And I promise to keep it real. Welcome to the Red Room. Well, you gotta be a rider till your fears are diminishing the doubts are behind ya. It's hard to grind in the business, got me stressed in the rent room. We let that shit up off our chest. You know the street nerd has got no time for no caca. Sass in class, yes, that's Mr. Bolakaja. Never have to guess when you're listening to Hilliard. He gon' bring more game than a shark playing billiards. It's all about the crap of screenwriting. It's exciting when you turn an outline into something enlightening. Your pen and words are like bullets in a gun. Write what you feel, say what you want. Welcome to the Red Room. Red room, red room.